Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Welcome. Happy Friday. Friday's on us. Exactly. It's yeah. amazing it's how they... I thought you were. Uh, I thought you were moving places, Adam. I was. How you do? Yeah. Cheers. Uh, I was going to, to, but it's too complicated. I don't even know how to make it work now. So I'm going to have to navigate. I'm going to yeah. have to be active on the mute button, but it will <laughs> make it work. My legs stopped working. I was nervous. It all happened at the same time. Exactly. Before we uh, introduce your... our guest, yeah, let's have. Uh, the... Yeah, everyone, keep in mind it's another Friday afternoon here with riffs. So uh, we are going to have a happy hour, have a drink have a wide-ranging discussion with our guest Dimitri today. So none of this is investment advice. Please don't take investment advice from four dudes on a YouTube having drinks on a Friday. Probably a bad idea. Or is it? Anyway, I will also ask you right now, those who of you who are listening, please smash up the like button or give us a, a comment, uh, 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 um, uh, share this and like it with your, your friends to uh, propagate uh, the message. All right. So, that, Richard, why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest today? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to let him do most of the introduction, but uh, suffice to say that I think all three of us and some of the other guys at the firm have been listening to uh, Hidden Forces, Dimitri's podcast, for some time. And uh, there's a lot of overlap in terms of interest, to say the least. And, and if so, you haven't, I, you should. Yes, absolutely. But we'll let uh, Dimitri do all the, the promos there in the beginning and at the end if he wants. But uh, Dimitri, welcome Please give us a little bit of your background uh, for the benefits of our listeners and viewers that might not be familiar with your work, please. Sure. So thank you guys for having me. This is very fun. Um, I, uh, I've worked mostly, I guess now at this point in my career, mostly in, in media for sure, and mostly on the content side of media. I began my career very briefly in finance, 
And then I uh, left to start a video game company. It was a middleware skill gaming company for the console gaming industry. And then I transitioned from that into the application development design side of television, like set-top box stuff. And then from there, I, I, w- I got into radio with my own radio show and then TV with a TV show that I created and produced until 2013. And I've done stuff in theater. I have a theater company and I started the podcast in 2017 and I've been doing that ever since. And it's been great. So you, your the podcast is your primary focus at the moment, right? Like that's your, your major project, your primary venture, maybe, Walk us through how you decided to get into podcasting and what the the business model is, how you've how you've shaped it. Sure. Yeah. So I, I loved once I got on radio for the first time, which was really by chance, I, I almost entirely by chance, I'd actually say. Um, I mean, I had no idea that I wanted to, to to be on radio. I wanted to I felt like I wanted to do documentary filmmaking when I was younger or work in movies because that stuff always interested me. But I, um, but once I got on radio and, and I was on the mic, I had a na- I, t- I naturally took t- to it. And after going a number of years as a result of, of something I've talked about before, which was a brain tumor diagnosis and surgery and radiation that forced me to kind of take a break from everything I'd been doing, I really missed it. And, uh, I tried to, I have something actually I haven't talked about. I've tried, I tried to get a job in TV um, and it was a very frustrating experience uh, meeting with, interviewing with people at some of the top programs that you would recognize. And I realized it was, it was going to be hard for me to get the same level of control and creative control over a program that I used to have. And I also never really worked very well in a corporate structure. Uh, so ultimately I just decided to launch a podcast from scratch. And I, I, when I look back now, if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't do it. It was so hard. <laughs> it was. As is always the way. Yeah, completely. And, you know, I really, I shot out of a cannon. If you listen to my early interests, they're so embarrassing because I sound like I am, I'm like hooked up to a battery. I'm, I'm so wired. And so animated and intense. And I was so excited. I was so happy to be doing it. So anyway, I, um, I started the podcast in 2017. And for the first year or so, I didn't, I didn't do any, anything financially with it. Or the first couple of years. I never took ads. and I never wanted to take ads. And I'd been approached about doing that many times, especially as the podcast reached a certain critical threshold. And I, I can go into reasons why, but I ultimately launched a, uh, a Patreon subscription and that has grown pretty substantially. I mean, it's a, it's not a, it's not a bad source of revenue. And, um, I'm currently exploring alternative ways to monetize the podcast that don't involve taking sponsors. And the reason I don't want to take sponsors is first of all, I don't want to have to vet a company and then that feels stressful. Uh, and, uh, and then also I don't, I don't like having to say stuff that isn't natural or that isn't part of what I want to talk about. So having to promote a show, promote a company at the beginning of my program is something I don't want to do. I also, um, 
I didn't want to be compromised. I think that is when you do a show like mine, you you really cover so many different things. And I just didn't want to feel like I would I, I had to walk on eggshells or any particular thing because you inevitably self-censor. And I actually had that situation happen once with a company that I was invested in, which I talked about on the program quite a bit and had the founders on. And I got a lot of heat from people for doing that, even though, you know, I fully disclaimed it. And I realized that that also impacted my own, uh, it inevitably makes you bias when you're invested in a particular, in a particular company. And finally, something that I didn't really appreciate, I kind of had a sense of it because you guys were like, we, we've sort of um, in, ingested a lot of the similar financial content, I'm sure, over the years. I'm very familiar with the financial newsletter industry, and I have been for a long time. And I was familiar with how profitable the industry was and is and how, how great a stream of revenue, recurring revenue streams are. Um, and so I was generally aware of it, but I've really come to appreciate what a big deal it is to have a revenue stream that consists of thousands of individual subscribers versus a couple to five maybe big sponsors. And so it's uh, it's been really liberating. It's great. Uh, it offers, I, I feel like I've, I've um, I've sowed a lot of seeds or whatever to planted. Maybe I need to sow them. I don't know which one is which. And uh, <laughs> and so like you know, there's a lot of opportunities for that. But honestly, I love doing this. It's so much fun. It's what I always wanted to do. So the 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 business model has been the last on my agenda. It's something that I'm I'm focusing on now and trying to to manage the managerial stuff, which is very different, very um, deliberate versus the artistic, which is what I love doing. And I love just ideating and reading and thinking. And so trying to manage those two as best I, I mean, can. your passion for it comes across in every episode. Um, I mean, it's just so clear that you have a generally or genuinely curious nature, right? Like mm-hmm. you just, you actually want to learn about all the subjects that you are interviewing about. And, and that comes across, um, do you think there's been like, you obviously haven't driven your content in a direction that is commercial, but rather you're, you've got content that you want to cover and you want to create and conversations you want to have. And you're trying to, trying to create a business around that. Right. As So do you find that yeah. there's any tension there? How do you navigate that? I think the, the opportunity, again, whatever I've been successful at in my life, I've thought differently about it. And I, I, that's a general framework that I apply. Of course, like just being a contrarian doesn't mean anything. You can be contrarian and wrong about anything. But television is a great example. And, and I'll bring this back to the business model. And I'm writing that business model so I don't forget because that happens sometimes. Where was I going with this? Um, when I had the TV show, when I created Capital Account, the, um, the head of the network was really pushed me on a regular basis, like daily basis to make the show more like what Fox News was doing, which meant, I mean, he, I remember he would not watch, he would not listen to the show. He, he, he was sort of a student of Roger Ailes, so he would do whatever he had heard Roger Ailes did, which was you have it on mute, you bring in sexy women or what you perceive to be are sexy women, you get leg shots, you get lots of colors, and you get dynamic fighting and stuff like that. And that was the opposite of what I was doing. I was more like in the Charlie Rose direction of what I wanted. And I felt like there was a huge, there's a huge segment of the market that wanted that. And so 
I, I, I think to answer your question about business model and, and approach, I need to, just knowing myself, I need to apply that same sort of um, open-minded, free, free thinking when it comes to how to extract value from, from the content I've created and how to monetize my, my audience and not thinking about it strictly in terms of selling more subscriptions or getting sponsors. And I think for me, just knowing the way that I work, that just requires that I prioritize it and I create a space to focus on it. And that's been the challenge for me because I'm not a great multitasker. I just kind of do one thing and I just do it like really hard and really well and really passionately. And it's hard for me to, 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 you know, silo different tasks, but I have the help of some people. So I think I will get there. One of the things that really... uh... Go ahead, Richard. I was just going to say some cognitive flexibility when it comes to the topics. And, cognitive flex. I like that. Yeah, because, I mean, you you mentioned that you have some background in the world of finance, even though you also have this sort of artistic and communications background. But the topics that you cover uh, range quite a bit. I mean, you you, you go into some financial uh, topics, but you're into geopolitics and you're into epistemology and philosophy and and so I'm, I'm just kind of curious as to where did these, uh, where did the idea for the guest slash topics come from? Do you, do you follow some of the recent books that come out that uh, interest you? Do you get some referrals? How does that work? Sure. Um, well, a great example is the guest that's coming on on Monday. I had no clue who he was. I was, I, I'm in a unique situation because I normally only book one guest a week and I try to book the guest within a, close enough to public to uh, publication, which is something that most podcasts don't do. Shockingly, even podcasts that talk about current events don't publish guests within a week. Um, and I try, I try to publish them within four to five to three days. Um, but I'm in the unique situation because I'm going to be going away in about a month and a half. So I need to stack some guests. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm speaking with two guests this week and I, I needed to find someone sort of uh, quickly and I was scanning through Amazon. This is one way, and sometimes I'll find guests. And I was looking through books, and this book caught my eye. It was called Revenge of the Real. And I've spoken quite a bit lately about what I feel is a sense of hyper-reality, that we're living in a, in a hyper-real environment, um, where, in, where we are increasingly really have no relationship to the physical world or to the world as we know it to be, the natural world. And... So I saw that book. I saw that title. It spoke to me because I felt like, oh, is this book suggesting that the real world, which is the persistent world, will have its day, that we can we can sort of live in this digital manifestation uh, or the secondary layer of society, but ultimately we're tied back to the physical world, which is something that I felt to be true. I did this one episode with um, Balaji Srinivasan, who was CTO of Coinbase and a very successful very creative minded guy in, in, in the crypto space. And, and generally, I think he, he had started a, uh, a pharmaceutical company or something, something to that effect before he got, he became CTO of Coinbase. Anyway, very interesting guy. Um, and his thesis, and I think he pulls from others who actually have written something similar is that we are moving increasingly towards a world where nation states and, and physical border, borders will be irrelevant and that the secondary network, secondary secondary layer network connections are going to be what matters, um, and tertiary and so on. 
And he talks about this in terms of, of either digital statehood or, or the, um, the network state is his term. I've seen it elsewhere as digital statehood. I've, not, I've never been persuaded by, the, by that argument, and I've really tried to be persuaded by it. I've tried to grapple with it and see if there's something there beyond the interesting sort of superficial aspects of it. But really, can we escape the, 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 um, the exigencies of the physical world? I don't think we can. And so I thought that was interesting. Um, and I'm going to have him on on Monday. I'm reading the book now. Um, I'm reading some other papers he's written. So that's one example. Um, Tim Grover, who was on recently, which was, I just love that episode. I don't know if you guys heard it, but I think for anyone who um, who's, who's sort of thinks of him or herself as either a winner or in competition or has enjoyed that sort of competition with self with others, you can really appreciate that book. He was pitched to me. In other cases, it might be... Um, that I, there's someone, let's say Paul Tudor Jones, I've reached out to Paul a number of times in the course of my time having the podcast. I've wanted Paul Tudor Jones on forever, right? He's someone that I would love to have on. I've wanted to have on the head of the BIS. I was this close to having the head of the BIS on. And uh, maybe, I think one day I will get him on. But um, so it depends. It might be the topic. It might be the person. Um, I've wanted to do an episode, for example, on um, you guys might have seen some of those recent reports about BlackRock and other funds buying up entire neighborhoods in Texas and elsewhere. I couldn't find the right guess for that, but that was a subject-motivated episode. And if it were to come together, it, were, it would have been inspired by that and not necessarily because of someone or something. One of the things that really, um, I think just just being candid, right? Like one of the things that I find that I really connect with in terms of your content is it's clear to me, or it seems at least to me clear that a lot of your um, ideas seem to have, have crystallized in, in the crucible around the sort of 2008 financial crisis. Right. Um, and the, the political machinations around that time, the policy responses and some of the assumptions around the, the sort of societal objectives or political objectives that are implied by those responses. And so I, I find a lot of the topics that you cover and, and the conversations you have sort of linked back to that. So I'm, I'm curious to learn more about your personal experience with 2008 and, or, or, you know, that, that time period and how you think it was formative for you and informs how you think about things today. Totally. Yeah. So I started learning, I started, my first uh, sort of touch point with finance happened in 1999, where my dad was a subscriber to Agora Financial and he would read the Daily Reckoning. And you guys ever read the Daily Reckoning? It was this hilarious newsletter written by Bill Bonner, who's brilliant. And I've met Bill and I had him on my old television show He's one of those guys, sort of real buccaneer. Um, it was a real, it was sort of, it was for, it was really libertarian, very anarchic stuff. And it was very Austrian. And then I started reading, uh, they had a, an Austrian economist whose newsletter they published called the Reichsbacher Letter. And the economist was Kurt Reichsbacher. He was a, he was a German Austrian economist who passed away in 2007. And I learned so much from him, but I, I didn't start reading Kurt until I started taking economics in college because I had the experience that so many other people did. I was, I started studying and learning 
economics by reading Samuelsonian textbooks um, and with you know neoclassical equilibria and no mention of banking systems or interest rates. I mean, certainly not interest rates in the context of prices. Um, and eventually I started reading Kurt's newsletters in 2003. And that just, that was the right framing for me to be able to see that we were, we were experiencing a mania, a credit fueled mania in 2003 through 2007, eight. And that that was not good. And that was going to lead to some bad consequences, which were sort of cyclically predictable. What was your, what was your role at the time? Like from 2003, how were you viewing this through what prism uh, professionally? I was in 2003 when I started reading Kurt Reitbacher, I was in an airport in Florence, missing my connecting flight, sorry, in an airport in Rome, missing my connecting flight to Florence to study abroad. And I ended up going back to live in Italy and work in Italy after that. But that was, I was a student at NYU. Um, I was, you know, Economics at NYU made no I majored in economics. I majored in political science and I minored in psychology. I was focused very much on, on economics and particularly political science at the time. And then I just found that shit fascinating. I found financial markets fascinating. And maybe because for a number of reasons, I'm sure. I think one of the reasons was I was always just there. It always felt like I was just there about to figure it out. And it would always escape me. It always escaped me. And I, I don't think I understood it at that time. I think it took years later to realize that that's always going to be the case. Mm-hmm. But I didn't understand at that time. I was like, I'll figure it out. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to figure it out. And um, so I just, I just found it fascinating. Obviously, money is important. And money is a form of power. Power interested me. Raw power in the context of geopolitics and policy. Not for myself, but... And in fact, I actually considered a career as a in working in, in policy making and in political science because I loved it so much. It was so fascinating. But ultimately, I felt like if I was going to do that, I, there were certain ethical dimensions that were problematic for me. Um, and I also felt like I didn't feel comfortable working in political science, working at a think tank, giving policy advice, even working for an administration without having for the U.S. specifically because of the U.S.'s role in the world and not having served in the military and served abroad because I felt like I was armchair generaling it. Maybe if I had been a reporter abroad, maybe if I, I'd have to have spent time in war zones to feel um, like I could really talk about and write about and think about policy. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's something that I think is problematic in general. You hear a lot of people commenting and without a ca- caveat, because we'll comment all day today, but you know, there's a lot of stuff. That we just get in the game, hundred percent. Or also, like, whenever I think about or talk about um, China or or the Chinese Communist Party, et cetera, et cetera, I don't even speak Mandarin, so I have to interpret the words of President Xi through an interpreter. That's like a huge impediment. Um, so there's, you know, I don't. I, um, you were so you, your original question, Adam, was how did I, what was I doing at the time that I was reading this stuff? Well, yeah, no, I just just going all the way back. Obviously, or my, my sense is that, that the experience of living through, through 2008 really helped to shape yeah. your political, philosophical, economic, financial um, compass. And so I just wanted to, like, what was, what was your professional role at the time and how did that impact yeah, so, what you were observing? Yeah, so I was working in Italy. I was managing off, off-campus real estate for NYU, and I was also um, chaperoning student trips around around the country 
and some other things for the university. Amazing, fun job, loved it. Um, and then I worked, like I said, I worked very briefly in banking. I worked for a very small bank in, in a, a bank in New York that was purchased by Santander. That was part of the whole centrifuge of okay. You know, yep. so that's right. a that's a breadcrumb right for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I was doing internal audit, and I was going to branches all over the um, all over the the. I was basically helping. At the time, I didn't. I was kind of figuring it out, but I was basically helping the uh, the uh, the CEO and the the executives consolidate the books and everything else, tie it up in a nice bow so they could sell it to Santander. Um, but I left very in very short order. I just I didn't like the job and internal audit is like the last thing I should be doing in my life. Um, you know, it just but it was fun going to all these different branches and meeting a lot of people. The social aspects of it was interesting. Um, I thought many times about how to rob a bank because I went through the protocols constantly. Not that I would ever rob a bank. Let's be very clear. That is you so live, right? So There's no editing anything out afterwards. The first thing right. a bank robber says. Right. Yeah, exactly. I, I, why would I talk about it if I did? Um, <laughs> and uh, so um, then I quit and I started a company called Gorilla Gaming Concepts. And the product was called Green Thumbs, um, which was basically a, like I said, it was a, it was a middleware for the console gaming industry that would allow you to bet on video games. It was very early. I think we were really ahead of the curve in that regard. In some ways, we're, we were still ahead of the curve because this was focused very much on console gaming um, for many reasons. I mean, there was an explosion in party poker at the time. All of my friends from school were working at hedge funds or investment banks. They all played video games. They all smoked weed. They all played poker. And there was this sort of uh, intersection, this brilliant intersection where it's like, why? And I focus grouped it with people. Why? If you could bet on Call of Duty, if you could bet on Madden NFL, like, oh, my, everyone was just stoked by it. Now, this is the classic case of, you know, inexperience, um, bumping up against more inexperience. But my my co-founder and I made an incredible progress with this company just given our, what our backgrounds were. We met with the, with all the top executives at Sony PlayStation. We got a sign-off. We got a, we got a license to develop on the PS3. We were at the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco in 2006 when they um, when they had released Little Big Planet. We developed um, – we, we, we go, took it as far as we could take it, um, but we ran into certain technological problems around security um, and as well as lag issues and raising questions of fairness. But ultimately – it's fascinating when you look back at this time, and I've talked about this from a different dimension, which has to do with how the world, I was on Grant Williams' podcast not long ago, and I talked about how the world feels fundamentally different today um, from anything that sort of existed before 2012 or so. And what I chalked that up to is, uh, but, but especially before 2000, and what I chalked that up to is the proliferation of mobile and ubiquitous connectivity and social networking, and all of these applications that are on your phone. And this was right at the cusp of the mobile revolution. Like people had, the people that were sort of, only investment bankers had Blackberries, and Blackberries are not iPhones. There was no, there was nothing, there was no rich mobile experience on the browser. And uh, and so the focus was really PC consoles. And the decision between PC and console was really about the demographic and the culture. The console gamer was very much more the kind of guy who would bet on sports, bet on um, 
bet on bet on poker or whatever. Um, but mobile was not in my sort of view, and uh, that's really where the opportunity would have been and was, and I think also um, much more scalable for lots sorts of reasons. So anyway, that was a fascinating experience. We we drove that those wheels off that bus in, um, up until 2008. And then I transitioned to a role uh, at Cablevision, uh, working under Wilt Hildenbrand and Patrick Donahue in strategic product development. It was a spe- Wilt Hildenbrand built Cablevision's, um, b- built a network under, under Chuck Dolan. And, and he was an amazing guy, like just one of those people that I think, think, I think about this sometimes, too, because I also worked for someone similar when I was a kid. I worked in commercial real estate at a commercial real estate brokerage. And this guy had fought in, in the Korean War. He was an Irish guy, um, kind of big family of kids, and sort of very much, your, you know, my word is my bond type of person, uh, very principled. And, though I'm, you know, those people just, it feels like they're a dying breed. So anyway, that's, and you know, Will passed away not long ago. He was really amazing. One of those guys, again, brilliant. He was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. I don't even know if he went to college, you know, just like a different breed. Um, and uh, so I had the privilege to work for him and I learned an enormous amount. Um, it was a really special, cool role. It was an incredible opportunity. And I got to do, I got to do that until my brain tumor diagnosis uh, at six months after which I quit. Because of, again, things I talked about, all the uncertainties around um, what that diagnosis meant and what, how much time I would have left and what did I want to do with my life. And so, it, it, you know, I, but by then we had the 2008 crisis. So to bring it back to your question, Adam, um, I was actually, I had a, I was, I had a TV um, at Cablevision. I had TV, I was at Cablevision. We had TVs and set-top boxes everywhere. So I was watching Aaron Burnett and uh, all the sort of folks at CNBC. I was glued because I was blown away that this was happening. Not that the crisis was happening, but that the, that the government was just I, – I, that was not my model. They just stepped – they literally just stepped in. They just took control of the remote. I was like, we'll take that. We'll take that. Thank you very much. Yep. We're just going to pre- stop pretending that this is all – sort of a nice, you know, organic machine that operates. We're just going to, and that um, put me in a dark place. And I, I've talked about this on one other, um, I think up recently at ETH Global may have been, no, I don't remember where it was. Maybe it was on a podcast. And I talked about how like this sent me down a dark rabbit hole of conspiracy, uh, just going through the wackiest theories. I've consumed hundreds and hundreds of hours of Alex Jones, maybe thousands, <laughs> maybe thousands of hours of Alex Jones. Some of it's um, true. We just don't know which some. What did you say? I said some of it's probably true. We just don't know which some. There is stuff that's true. Well, that's how it works, right? There's like, mm-hmm. there's, of course, there's stuff that's true. Um, there are two. One thing is that that's completely true is that the sort of establishment narrative is bullshit. That's completely true. Um, and you have to sort through all of that noise to figure out what is a much more representative model of the world. What f- folks like Alex Jones do is they... They tell you that's bullshit. And then they they sort of they construct a very elaborate or an elaborate series of theories that explain the world that make sense in retrospect. When But they they, you, they they're not actually true or they're not reliable models of the world. And he wasn't the only one. I mean, I went down so many rabbit holes. I have a shelf in my library that's dedicated to books that I read during that time of people that 
you know, I don't know what the hell I was thinking, but it was extremely interesting to kind of go down that road. And you know, there's some of those folks are the kind of folks that you don't see on, on, on Joe Rogan, but you probably would have seen on Joe Rogan if he was doing the show back in 2008. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I saw the Zeitgeist documentary, which was an incredible piece of internet history culture. Really. I don't know if you guys are familiar with, with that Peter Joseph's film, but it was like, if you're a nerd around, and I've done an episode on this, again, why I did an episode early on in the show, episode four, on the history of American television and culture, because I found all this stuff fascinating. But it was an incredible moment in the power of the internet, the raw, naked power of the web before it was really commercialized in the way that it has it has been, and you specifically in the context of YouTube. And you really just a purely viral piece of user-generated content. Um, so anyway, that's what I was doing. I was really, I got really depressed as a result of it because I had, like I said, been, um, without saying I was predicting a crisis, as you could get as close to saying I was predicting, I was getting into a lot of really aggressive conversations at family dinners or if not family, like, uh, you know, family uh, holiday things where there were a lot of people or I, I went to, I went and saw Mark, uh, Mark Chandler from Harriman Brothers, uh, was a great guy uh, uh, speak at like some event I remember in the city in 2008. Um, and like, I would get into arguments with people about like, you know, how effed we are and like, just, this is a giant bubble, et cetera. And, um, and wanted to be right. And then when all of this happened, it just, it was just, it was this, it was disillusionary and it made me question everything, including 2001, nine 11. I went down conspiracies there. And that was just, it was just general unraveling, realizing that like, um, the world as I thought it was, uh, was even uh, less true. What I thought was even less true than what it was. And I just didn't know where to, you know, what to hold on to, what sense to make of anything. And that made me want to understand markets even more. It's astonishing how much overlap there is between your experience and my experience, which I've also articulated in various mediums. But um yeah, just the same sense of seeing it coming, being well positioned for the crisis in portfolios and being completely ill prepared for the magnitude of the policy response mm-hmm. and then creating such a, a sense of disillusionment that lasted for several years and sent me spiraling in a, in a, in a variety of different directions. And and you just can't help it. Your brain is is rewired during times like that. And then at, you view so many other things subsequent to that through that prism. And then there's a, a process that you have to go through to sort of unwire or, or, you know, reset some of that stuff so that you don't just continue to see 2008 coming around every corner and you can begin right. to see, you know, things through somewhat of an optimistic prism or see the, see some silver linings and things. And, did you find that you emerged from that at a different person or, or have you, have you kind of, do you continue to work through some of those things to this day? Do you think? Um, yes. But I, before I answer that, I, I wanted to ask you something, Adam, which is, cause this is a question I, I don't think I have an answer to. Why was it so hard for us to see that coming? The policy response, because in, in retrospect, it seems sort of, if not, if not obvious, certainly more likely than I think perhaps you, certainly me, gave it, gave, gave it credence. So, I, you know, I wonder you and anyone else, like, why was it so hard to foresee? 
Well, there's also a number of levers that were pulled, right? I mean, one of, and, and many of them had never been pulled before, right? So one of them was they changed the rules around mark to market accounting in, you know, I don't, I forget, I think it was November, 2008. And, and so all of these SPVs and all these bank balance sheets completely flipped, right? The, the, the sign of the, of the balance sheet completely flipped and by, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars overnight. Um, they, there were these swap lines that were introduced. So all the balance of payments were equilibrated. There were um, obviously the expansion of the balance sheets that had never been um, experimented with before. Right. So there were all these policy responses that was just, there was just no historical precedent or what, if there was historical precedent, it was during the depression and so it was it's just right. naturally the, difficult the to it was, draw. right right and during yeah, the depression, there was go ahead no i was just going to say that qe did in fact happen in in the time of the depression even though it's so far back a lot of people don't remember but the but fact it also that the didn't happen in isolation it happened with a massive fiscal response as well yeah and the fact that the government didn't take preferred equity in all the major banks as they did in 08, which would probably have prevented the Great Depression of having reached the depth that it did and lasted as long as it did. So the, I think the, the, the idea that the government came as the backstop to actually owning the equity in the banks, which at the time was couldn't it was be the purposing of TARP from was, what they yeah. originally told the Congress. Yeah, it was unfathomable. And now in COVID, they they've, they've taken this one step further, which is now they started to buy corporate bonds. And and yeah. I wouldn't put it past them that if the next hiccup comes along, they're going to go full BOJ, uh, Bank of Japan, and right. just actually buy outright equity, which is something that is, along with yield curve control, is always lingering there in the backdrop of potential policy tools that might be brought to bear uh, if and when the, the market uh, cries loud enough right so but go ahead you were well i i i mean i have a question i mean adam asked me a question and we'll get back to it i just want to say well that, that's where the nihilism comes in so simon mikhailovich who i've i've known for a number of years as well was recently on grant williams's podcast and he it was a really great episode yeah, I, i'm looking I, forward I, to listening yeah it's it was very good um and uh and he talks about his experience growing up in the soviet union and, and the sort of nihilism, I think, if I'm not overly paraphrasing or misinterpreting, that came out of the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the ideology that kept the union together. And we have an ideology. It's called market capitalism. And what 2008 represented was a demolition of that ideology. 100%. Yep. And so people look at that and they say, well, why the fuck... Should I invest in anything based on the fundamentals? Like none of that matters. Nothing matters. What matters is power, raw power, and the ability to mobilize it for, for private ends. Spin is- a compelling narrative, to, to use the, the term that our, uh, our, our, our mutual friend and guest Ben Hunt uses a lot. I know you've had Ben on, and so yeah. have we. The narrative machine and the ability to, to weave the compelling narrative, that is what the game is about. Uh, uh, more than anything. So uh, absolutely that is. And so I think I, I wanted to walk forward the idea of, of using 2008 as sort of this, this catalyst 
and, and, and sort of the starting point for a different worldview of how policy might respond. And walking forward to today with what we've seen uh, in the post-COVID uh, uh, policy responses, this is a conversation that we have internally quite a bit. And it's this idea that, yeah, the capitalist structure, the system that we've seen isn't really the, the true capitalism that uh, we might have expected. It's, it's it's a socializing of losses. It's the moral hazard of all of this. But uh, it, it's hard to shake the feeling that this system is arriving at a point of exhaustion to some extent. So I wonder if you might sort of set the stage to, to some of the topics that we've been dying to to. to to dive in with you on the geopolitical front, but sort of how you see where we are on a societal, geopolitical, economic slash financial standpoint and, and, and both the U.S.'s place in the world as the beacon of this form of capitalism, which appears to be somewhat crumbling as China rises and this other uh, system uh, comes to antagonize it. So I wonder if you could just give us your 30-foot view of, of how you see the world today. It's interesting. Something that popped into my head just now that I hadn't thought of in this way before is that in the same way that 2008 was disillusionary um, because of the government's actions, in, in a similar way, I think, we find ourselves confronting the gross absence of the government in this in, in in the world we live in today the growth the, the sort of the absence of regulators the absence of the american state at the international stage in the international stage in the way that we've we've thought that that it it it, it how do i sort of capture it i mean like you know the, the 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 i think the election of donald trump in 2016 and now the election of joe biden has left many people bewildered um trump for obvious reasons was sort of like this giant explosion on the scene. No one could really figure out what it was that he intended, what his policy was. And there was all that online trolling and everything else. And now you have Joe Biden and he so, looks so manifestly feeble. And so so very much the opposite of what you would consider to be executive power in the way that you've considered it, the way that we've sort of imagined it. And so I would say that where, we, where I would say we are today is a place of profound societal confusion. We, we don't really understand. We thought we knew what it meant to be America. We're increasingly um, disillusioned around what that even means. We don't know what it means. We don't. We don't understand. We don't. We question American power on the international stage, whether it's with China, whether it's in the U.S. withdrawing out of Afghanistan. There doesn't seem to be a coherent story. I guess I would say about what the nature of global power is, or not global power, the nature of, 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 the, of the global system, who's in charge, that's another one, who is in charge. Um, and in that way, the 2008 crisis begins to look less like the establishment coming in to provide order, and more like private interests looting the government ahead of a collapse. And it just kind of, and I'm, I think I'm having a hard time articulating what I want to say, in part because We've heard so much bombastic language around collapse, Rome, et cetera. And I'm, I'm sort of allergic to that type of talk. But what I, what I do feel is that every single day, people like me are waiting for the, the adults to enter the room. And with each passing day, I begin to feel less confident and less confident and less confident. 
And so you do have to wonder, is this what it's like to live in a collapse, in a collapsing country, in a collapsing society? Is this what it is, where it just you just become more accustomed to disorder, to, um, to misinformation, disinformation, discord, division? It just amplifies the, the, and amplifies and amplifies. The looting continues like. on, the whole uh, passing on the, the losses and socializing them, right? Each step has gotten larger in that sense. Mm-hmm. So you're living through that, but, and but in, you're being warmed slowly, right? You, we, they couldn't have taken the steps maybe that they took in COVID had, had it not been preceded by the opportunity to have intermediate steps done in 08 in the housing crisis. If it, it, and, I, and I talk about that in that looting of the government sense. Like each step gives more, more opportunity to take the next bold step. And so I you're in this whether there's, yeah, constant to... decline. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it's a really the way you framed it, Dimitri, is kind of really making me think about when you think about it, this is a looting of the government. Yeah, and it's that, also that the... really reframes it in a way that's enlightening for me. And, you know, when it comes if you think about it as an information channel, there's just in, there's more and more noise in the channel. Um, as 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 the the bailouts continue, they need to get bigger and they need to get bigger. Um, the the looting and everything else, and it just it creates more and more noise. And at some point, the system can't work. It can't differentiate in, a signal from noise. And right. I think we see that in markets, most obviously. The, 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 we were just talking about Peter Keating from uh, um, Ayn Rand's uh, the water the the water the fountain. Right. The, the whole creation of noise around the signal so that the signal's gone and there's only noise is sort well, I think of what Trump sort of perfected that. Right. I mean, like what what the the GFC did in 08 and what Trump did when he was elected or during his um, campaign and then once he was elected in many ways sort of made what was hidden explicit. Mm-hmm. Right. Like yeah. it seems to me, which which I didn't I didn't choose to see or it wasn't there weren't enough sources for me to get to to see around corners prior to 2008 or whatever for me to see what was there to be seen and then in in 2008 it was this thing that was hidden was exposed Mm -hmm. right like i i often (laughs) this is this is obviously not daytime television i always i often um allegorize 2008 for me as you know before i was a child wandering disney world thinking this was the real world and after 2008 was like i wandered into the tunnels beneath disney world and i saw mickey mouse buggering a small boy right like it, Beverly Hills cop three right yeah yeah like it's it, wally that, world not wally that's world. the and then and then trump sort of made this this idea of the crowd watching the crowd, mimetic desire, all of these these um, lizard brain instincts that we have as humans and that we react to in a social context, he he made those explicit and and in a way that was very uncomfortable for those of us who were comfortable with with the norms and the and the intellectual integrity or what the set of philosophical principles that you know we thought we were operating in and we thought that everybody operated in and that- but he's more symptom adam wouldn't you say i i, I mean i think one of the things that happened i mean to demetrius earlier point 
the, the, the mobile revolution and the social media and the exponential rise of social media, which led to these information bubbles, means that everybody has their own narrative and the idea and the ability to 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 to, to, to actually create a coherent narrative that actually brings people together is farther and farther away from any kind of possibility because the information bubbles just keep feeding you what your biases tell you that will keep you more engaged in these networks. And so Trump was a symptom of what's happening in this, potentially Dimitri is right, a, a, a decaying society. We, we, we hope not, but I mean, there, there's a lot of signs that would suggest a, a crumbling empire to some extent. And and. I do feel that the, the, the Trump thing really is just a representation of this this broader problem uh, uh, that just keeps getting worse if we can't find common ground in terms of understanding, like like, like the, the establishment of reality, right? Because we we there's we don't have a way to establish first principles knowledge of most of the facts that are exposed to us. We call them facts, but we don't know we don't know them from first principles. And, and, and so how, how do we combat that and arrive at some form of, 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 of common ground there, I think, is, is, is the real issue. Yeah. I mean, is that, is that a question for me or just in general? It's an open-ended question. I think it's very hard. I, I want to actually just – so uh, just hold that thought, um, and you can ask again if I miss it. But I just wanted to ruminate a bit more on Donald Trump. Because his candidacy created so many complex problems for conversation, for consensus. Um, even now, when I talk about Donald Trump, there's a, there's a, I have this anxiety about bringing up his name because I'm afraid that I'm immediately going to be categorized by whoever's listening. Um, and I do this to people as well. When I hear, hear people bring up Donald Trump's name, I get this. I'm like, are they going to go down this thing where they make everything about Donald Trump and the whole world and all the evil things that have happened in the world because Donald Trump? Um, and that, I certainly you know, don't see Donald Trump as being the source of all the ills. But I do see Donald Trump as being this like really dark harbinger of destruction. And I think that uh, given the fact that his candidacy lasted only four years um, and how much energy was put behind dethroning him, getting him out of office by the establishment, and, and how they seem to have largely ignored everything that led to his presidency that got him elected in the first place. I can't help but think that at the very least, one of the possible you know futures that we could be living in is one where we look back 20 years and we see, ah, that was the canary. And if we were going to get our shit together, it should have happened after that election or after the end of that presidency. But we did it. And so this is why we got this totalitarian dictatorship 20 years later. Um, and so, I mean, that that deeply worries me. And I don't know. And I think part of the problem, guys, is that while you while the four of us might look at the folks that, you know, strolled into the Treasury and into the Federal Reserve and extracted effectively trillions of dollars in order to save the whole system and enrich themselves in the process. Um, we are beneficiaries of that system. And we are just not as, we're just not up there, but we're, we're high enough that we're not simply willing to invest our lots with everyone else. So it's this, 
and again, I'm 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 um, I'm being presumptuous about where all of you fit and how all of you feel, but that's how I feel. And so it's this weird thing where, like, morally, I'm outraged. And so when Donald Trump speaks, it absolutely resonates with me. Um, and at the same time, I don't want it to burn it all down because I've worked really hard to get to this place in my life, and I'm also not in a place where I can afford to have things burned down. And so that's part of the problem. We're kind of in the way of a solution. We're in the way of our own solution. And, you know, if when you look back at FDR in 1933, um, his policies were very unpopular with elites and people who had worked, you know, to accumulate wealth. And yet you wonder whether or not, absent some type of socialized response and fiscal response, if the United States and, you know, again, we, there was there was a world war, there was preparation for the Second World War, et cetera, would we have gotten out of it? And can we get out of our current predicament without some type of wealth redistribution? And it's kind of this thing where, you know, we might all agree that that needs to happen, but it doesn't want to be us that takes the hit. And that's sort of the, or it doesn't want to be us to take the hit if we can't control the quality of the outcome, you know, and it, it, it's the game theory that gets in the way. So um, what was your question? Sorry. Um, Richard, you, yeah. Richard. Yeah, no, I guess I was just getting at the, the fact that, yes, uh, Trump really is a strong symptom, but yet again, a symptom and, and not cause. And I think that the, the information bubbles and the, the, the exponential uh, rise of social media have been really the, the, the main conduit through which we, we, we've arrived where we are today. So did hyper-reality, did the hyper-real state create Trump? Could he have, could he have emerged absent that context, right? Donald Trump, Donald Trump, fascinating. I mean, literally, I, 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 if, if I could read one biography of the future, it would be the biography of Donald Trump by someone who had spent time with him in the Oval Office, accumulated years worth of notes, um, and really had the, the intelligence and broad, uh, interdisciplinary interest to piece up together all the different parts that you, some of which you just articulated. Um, That's a tall order, Dimitri, because anybody with those characteristics yeah, would, my not have, would not have hung around enough in the Oval Office to, to, to be able to withstand. Who knows? Maybe he's uh He's just around. a fascinating figure because he was so, um, you know, one of the interesting concepts that I've been uh, sort of flirting with recently has been um, – not what I don't know what we would call it bio biomechanical cyber organism stuff, but like human beings have always been cyborgs to some degree or another. Um, like you know, when I have a pen in my hand, like my brain maps to that pen and I can write. Um, now, this is the problem with drinking. I just forgot what I was going to say, but it was something. It was an interesting point about um, about oh, I think uh, anyway. But, but to to bring it back, what I wanted to say about Trump is that. One of the things that's so fascinating about him is that he he was just like he was the perfect guy for this moment. He had such an intuitive this is where I was gonna say he has almost like his hand is like intuitively part of the the network of the machine of outrage. Yeah. He knew how to use it, he knew how to speak to people, and he harnessed it incredibly well. 
Uh, and that speaks to a problem, I think. And now he was president. Of, well, he wasn't president when he did it, right? Um, but increasingly, that type of power accrues to, to, to lower and lower layers of the network. Um, and, at, you know, at sort of at the limit, it would be every single node of the network would have the capacity to destroy the entire system. And that's the world we're moving towards. And it presents real issues for that tension between centralization and decentralization between totalitarianism and liberty. Um, and we all see it. We all, we all want to live, those of us at least who, us, the four of us for sure, most people in the U.S., want to live in a world where we have freedom. And yet we, we recognize that in, in the type of world we're living in and that we're moving towards, increased destructive amounts of power accrue to the individual whether we're talking about the ability to print a synthetic bioweapon or hack into a water filtration system for a town. So how do you navigate that tension? And that's, that for me is one of the biggest problems. I don't have a solution to that. I don't know. I don't know. We're, we're, you know, we've been living in now for years with these threats, none of which have really, really materialized. There has been no sort of 9-11 type moment that comes so far out of the blue that creates sheer panic. The pandemic was not one of those. I don't know. I mean, this is also this also raises something that I have to recognize, which is, again, our experience, the pandemic was very different than most people's because we had the means and, and the ability and the situation to be able to ride it out pretty comfortably mm -hmm. um, and very comfortably, to be honest. And so so that's a, that's one that's one issue that we could talk about uh, talking about, again, this divide between those who are in a position to solve the problem and those who have the outrage to solve it or who are financially motivated to solve it. There's a disconnect there. Well, um, I think, don't you think that but part of that is that in, in a time where it is generally acknowledged either explicitly or, or implicitly, you know, you don't need to think you don't need to, ha to sit and ruminate or talk with friends about this to arrive at this kind of conclusion. But I I'm, I'm, I'm connecting to this idea of uh, Ben Hunt fiat news or fiat reality where we're all, we all now have the ability to create our own reality because you can find online any material that you'd like backed by people with meaningful credentials to support virtually any viewpoint, right? And so in a time when nothing is real, there is no truth, as you say, the fundamentals were blown up in 08. They've been blown up on several occasions since. It's been made very clear that fundamentals no longer are, are central to the premise of capital allocation or prudent uh, prudent action in furtherance of an objective, then if, if if everybody internalizes that, it becomes explicit very quickly that this is a zero-sum game and the only objective should be to basically embrace the the pirate code, right? Mm -hmm. Like take what you can, give nothing back, right? Yeah. Like, and we're so, in a, in an environment where this is the, that held truth, what type of person rises to positions of Ooh. power? Wow. Really what are the character question. traits that allow a person to be more likely to rise to a position of power? It's the ability 
I, and I'm I'm riffing now, right? But per, perhaps it's you you can lie. You, sorry, you can lie with um, with sociopath. With, being a sociopath is really I, the. I, 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 that's where I'm converging to, right? Like, so the qualities of being sociopathic are what allows you to get the most out of the system in the current state. And by virtue of this, the fact that this is the context we've all, we all are realizing that we operate in, that's no longer something to be condemned. Instead, it's something to right. be admired. So there you go. By the way, again, Simon Mikhailovich, love Simon. He talked about this a little bit. What I would say is that the person that rises in such a society, in a society that's increasing coming apart, where looting becomes increasingly possible, is someone who gives permission. Someone who comes in and says, go ahead and loot. I support you in your looting. I support you in the destruction and the unraveling of the state, in everything that was holy, which is no longer holy. It's all unholy. It was all lies. It was all erected. So loot. I think that's the sort of person that becomes elected or, or comes up in such a system, a destroyer. And, I, um, you know, I think that's what Donald Trump was. I just don't think that he was. But it's not just Donald Trump, Trump, right? It's it's Elon Musk. It's um, it's Mark Benioff. It's like it's it's. And, you know, all of them, whatever. And I'm not a, a Musk hater or whatever. And I think he's no, no, done, I'm with done you. lots I'm with of great you. stuff. But but just this sort of this fiat news and the, the ability to sort of navigate um, and, and control the crowd, watching the crowd and, you know, sculpting the narrative in order to. The difference I would say though, is Donald Trump was president of the United States. Like I'm not picking on Donald Trump because of the man that grew up, Donald J. Trump, you know, lived for 70 years until he was elected president. He, he, he put on the costume. He came out on the stage dressed in character or like in the character that we all, because when, when, when Barack Obama put on the vestiges of, of the presidency, he became a different person. We've mythologized that role. And especially after, after the end of, of uh, World War II and the beginning of the Cold War, you had massive expansions in the power of the executive. And he put all of that on and all of his awesome power and started tweeting bullshit and trolling people and saying crazy shit. And accusing, saying, lock her up. And I mean, the kind of stuff that it was, you could hear the screaming terror of the, of the established class, of the Washington, Washington consensus. So that's what made Donald Trump so um, historic. He's going to be someone that people will study. And his presidency, as a moment in time, will be something that um, it's what it says about the state of the country, right? So, sorry to interrupt there, Dimitri, but I, oh, I think what you're getting at is, is back to the canary in the coal mine. When someone rises to the highest job of the greatest superpower on earth, there, there are a certain level of criterion that you expect from this person. And, and, and the fact that he rose to that job, I, I guess what everyone questions is, what does this say about the country? What does this say about the society that, allowed such character to, to, to rise to that. You know, what are, what are some of the deep ingrained grievances that force some of the electorate to flip the bird to the establishment, to the elites of the, the, of the coastal elites and say, you know what, we've been forgotten in middle America. It's the, it, it's the lack of empathy that allowed a, a large portion of, uh, of the U.S. society to, to, to be felt, to feel like they were left behind. 
it, it, it I think it's all those symptoms that I think make make it kind of unbelievable. You know, you know what what does this mean about the U.S.? You know, how could we let it get to this point? I think is what yeah. is where you're getting at. Well, I would just say though, I think that even here as I'm sitting and I'm talking about it, because it's been now uh, how long since he left office? It was, more, it was more than just, right, it was more than just there are things that we expect. We mythologize the American system. I don't use that term lightly. We mythologize American democracy. We mythologize the Capitol, and we mythologize the presidency. We have stories that we tell about George Washington all the way through, all the presidents. All, we have, this, is, this is something we're ingrained in from when we're children in school. So I just think that this is, you know, this, I, I just, I think what he did is going to have profound repercussions, just like uh, George Bush's invasion of Iraq, um, just like the 2008 crisis. I think these are all powerful moments. In terms of what allowed this to happen, it's the same stuff we've been talking about. It is the, the hypocrisy, the, the violation of principles led ultimately to the manifestation of an individual who could inhabit the office and the costume of the most important mythological role in our entire governing system. Because we wrecked it. We, I mean, we, uh, those in positions to loot, looted in broad daylight. So of course the population was like, well then fuck those rules and fuck you. Right. It ties back to great financial crisis. It, it, it definitely does because that's when the, the, the whole charade was exposed to such a large extent that everybody who felt they, they were left behind and, and, and theoretically Obama was the candidate of change. Huge letdown. And, and, and he let down so many people that I think there, there was a large cohort that voted for him that ended up voting for Trump. A lot of the swing voters in some of the purple states. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just a little cognizant. There are a couple of things... I wanted to place this conversation sort of three steps backwards, sort of looking at the the, 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 the the globe. So putting all that we're talking about in context with the potential, well, the perception of a declining U.S. and the rise of China. And I wanted to put China particularly, and I, then I do want to ask you about Russia as well. But this, this, this idea that has been floated around several times of a Thucydides trap, you know that eventually we're going to there's going to be a clash and and, and particularly it seems like taiwan would be uh, uh the, the the most likely hotspot from a from a miscalculation standpoint not because the us and china would deliberately fight a hot war over uh, uh taiwan but the idea of kind of like in world war 1 the guns of august you know everybody miscalculated how everybody else was going to react and they and, and sure. they just kind of tripped into a war sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I was reading something recently about Ian Bremen talking about how uh, TSMC, the big chip uh, manufacturer, would be the equivalent to a Lockheed Martin to the U.S. in the beginning of the Cold War. And the fact that, that the U.S. is currently uh, uh, partnering up with TSMC and having them build a huge factory in, in, in Arizona for, I think, $20 billion or something like that, and then telling the executives there that they can't export uh, the high uh, technological chips to mainland China, and that that might be perceived by China as the U.S. crossing a, a, a pretty relevant red line uh, in, in the geopolitical sphere. So I wonder, I, I know I went there a, a little long there, but I just wanted to kind of contextualize as to 
how some of our perceptions go in terms of the, 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 the geopolitical clashes that might be uh, on the horizon? Yeah, so um, one of the things that came to mind is, well, two things, an image of us as like a fighter on his heels. You know, we're still on, we're still backpedaling. Uh, we, we're trying to figure it out. We're trying to figure out where we are, whether we're in the game, we're not in the game. Um, the Chinese Communist Party has had a very clear vision, strategy, and it's implementing. It's implementing. It's going forward. Um, so I think, you know, uh, this is a concern. Something else, I think, which is important in terms of how to how to manage this. And you brought up the cities trap. I'm not entirely convinced by the, this thesis. You know, I just think there's just not enough data to make the case that whenever you have a rising power and a declining power that you're going to have a right war and conflict. I just, I don't buy it. And it's full of caveats, obviously, the, the first being the most recent example, which is the, the, the U.S. and the U.K., um, you know, for reasons that, are, again, it's like um, reasons why. But I think right now, I, I don't think the U.S. can win a, a war with China. When I say win, what I mean is the out, if you consider um, war with China, there's no, there's no way in which that ends well for anyone. Pyrrhic victory. Anybody who wins right. is going to win a Pyrrhic victory. Yeah. Exactly. And I also feel, again, the caveat being I don't speak Mandarin. I'm not a China expert, um, which is a big, big caveat. But I, I feel from everything I've studied of China, and I have studied quite a bit as someone who, again, doesn't speak Mandarin, is not a professional student on the subject. I do get the sense that their commitment to this, to taking Taiwan, and also their commitment to rising and challenging the United States is um, is sort of really, it's, it's not negotiable. Um, and so I don't see the U.S. in terms of politically speaking, being able to muster the type of support to fight a war, let, let alone a prolonged war with China. So the way I see this in a hot war of any sort I believe that this war, to the extent it's currently being fought, right? There is a war going on between the U.S. and China, but it's being fought in the halls of parliaments in Western Europe and in the boardrooms of corporations across the United States and the West. That's where it's been fought. That's where it continues to be fought. And if the U.S. wants to really be able to stop this and um, save much of the open Western liberal democratic international order that has developed over the last X number of years, I think it has to start there. Um, and that means building a strong working coalition with Western governments. And it's not clear that that's going to happen because so we, we live in a time where national interest and nation state politics are actually rising in importance as international relations and international cooperation and international institutions are fraying. Um, and you see this, whether it's, you know, with Germany or, um, or, uh, or maybe uh, I'm forgetting what country also recently uh, came out making com West, what Western country make, made comments in favor of Beijing or at the very least in favor of cooperation of the sort that we would think is not strategically viable. So I think that's the game. The, the opportunity is really in mustering a coalition. And unfortunately, I don't really see because America doesn't seem to put doesn't seem to have a coherent 
sort of um, whole of government approach to this problem and one that they can articulate to the American public in order to create a broad base of support. I don't see when and how we're going to get there. I pray and hope we will. But we continue to be hobbled by our own internal divisions to get our act together on this issue. Yeah. Does that answer your question or was that not? I mean, I, I don't there's no I, I you know, there's still so much uncertainty in this relationship. Right. Like we don't actually know how it's going to work out. But but let let's assume, yeah. though, that that there's I mean, we're we're in a period of competition. I don't know whether Trump explicitly set us on this path or whether we were on this path and Trump just named it. But we're 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 clearly we moved at some point from coopetition to, to competition that profoundly shifted the equilibrium state and the game theoretic, um, by, you know, decision tree, um, moving forward. And so in a state of competition, how does the U S navigate a situation where we've got potential hostility in the direction of China? We've got, We've got a n- more potential hostility facing Russia. H- how do you perceive some of the more recent um, capitulations? Maybe I'm using that word a little bit too loosely, but certainly accommodations that that we've seen from the Biden administration in the direction of Russia. Like, how do we navigate this potential flanking um, hostility and and and? And if we don't navigate it effectively, what are the potential flashpoints that you see that in, that people should be watching to to hint at potential escalation? Well, you know, Josh Wolf has talked about something which I think is interesting. If I don't misinterpret what he what he means, which is that there's a real opportunity for Hollywood and fil- filmmakers to spin a story. Uh, that basically explains to the American people where they find themselves. So that, in other words, the political support for a reframing of the American relationship to China and therefore the political willingness needed to reorient the U.S.'s policy in order to bring on allies and form a coalition could come from People, the private sector, I suppose, is a way. What does that story look like? What does the most constructive narrative look like, in your opinion? Do you have a, do you have any intuition? Um, you know, I had Josh. I mean, Joe, uh, Josh Rogan on my show not long ago. Did you guys hear that episode? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you guys read his book? No. Any of you? Not yet. I but not. it sounds phenomenal. Sure. I've read a lot of books on China, and I've spoken with a lot of people on China and uh, read a lot of articles and listened to a lot of podcasts. No one articulated this, the, the, the dynamic as it currently exists better than Josh. He basically, he basically depicted an environment in which we are currently at war with China and don't know it. And you can really see it when you have the details laid out, all the different ways in which it feels like this organization, this insurgent organization, which is the Chinese Communist Party that was born out of a civil war, is wrapping itself around Western international institutions and squeezing increasingly and cutting off the oxygen levels. And we are so busy fighting with ourselves that we don't see that. Now, again, I don't know how to tell that story in a, in a, in a film. I don't even know how all of that comes together. 
I think we're, we've, we're sort of, well, look, we're living in that, right? I mean, we're seeing that, whether it's Joe Rogan, not Josh Rogan, Joe Rogan, or um, even, you know, lots of commentators on the left increasingly talk about China in adversarial terms and in moral terms. That's also very important, right? And and uh, Do you so, feel like we have, we have strong moral ground from which no, to- No, that's the problem. Yeah, right. We don't. Right. We don't have strong moral ground. And this goes back to the nihilism. Right. It goes back to like, oh, well, you know, it's all bullshit. So, so you've used this term in, in previous episodes. I really like it. And I've, I've stolen it. Just full disclaimer. You, you use the, word, way. No the term financial nihilism. Yeah. What what is that? What is the um, what is the ontology of that? And, and what are some potential um ways that that could unfold both politically and economically in your opinion well i think the first time i used i've used it before this but i think the first time i used it in an episode was actually when i had ben hunt and grant williams on together and i think the episode was called financial financial nihilism was in it and i think the subtitle was price discovery in a world where nothing matters um and that's where i began to sort of come to this view it particularly in, in, in markets, uh, because I'd seen it in other areas of society. But I, I, I think we've all sort of struggled with this, right? We talked about it before when it came to this idea, this notion of value investing, and this idea that you can identify empirically what is underlying value that exists independent of price. And then you can determine whether you want to purchase it or not based on the relationship between value and price. But in a world where this is also inspired, by the way, from a documentary called The Price of Everything, which is about the art world. And now, of course, in, in the art world, price is value. You know, like, yeah, you have some subjective value when you when you when you sit and look at your one hundred million dollar mural. But like its value is in is entirely in its price and vice versa. That's that's not a utility that you can derive from it. Um, certainly not getting a hundred million dollars worth of value. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe, but so, um, so, uh, the, to go back to financial nihilism, um, I think the way that it's, look, the way that it's manifesting is kind of the way that I've, I've been talking about a number of these other phenomena in general, when it comes to markets, it, you see it when you, when you look at these meme stocks, people piling in, creating like the, the whole thing with narrative investing, what's, what's so incredibly nihilistic about it is not that people are investing in something because they think it's going to go up, but because they're investing in something because they believe that the narrative about it is more is convincing enough that other people will also feel that it's convincing enough that the thing will go up. But there's it's, more to it too, right? Like it's not, it's not even just that. I, in my estimation or observation, it's also, it's also... I'm not even really in this to make money. I'm in this well, that also? to to beat the man or like that's a secondary or tertiary objective, right? I'm in right. it to stick it to yeah. the hedge funds. I mean, right. But it's it's willing to lose money at it because no one's sticking to the hedge funds. Well, there's, there's, that there's, too. There's, yeah. there's a handful of retail investors that maybe made some money there, but it's, it's most likely and people wear it as a badge of honor to show the Robin hood account, losing money on these trades and this, yeah. Uh, 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 being the personification of flipping the bird to the man, whereas the man is actually making money off all this because it's riding 
the hordes and the synchronization of the retail investors as a factor, as an investment factor. Now, mm -hmm, because the mm -hmm. the uh, uh, signaling mechanism of markets, as we knew before, is completely broken. Yeah, it's like if your arm gets blown off and you just come and start showing your friends, you're like, look at this, isn't this gross? Look at this, right? But that's not <laughs> serious. Your arm just blew off, you know? And so there is that, of course. But there's also this, uh, this real investment strategy that's being deployed by... Like, I don't even know how many people. It's not like a, a niche thing. It's how people invest in crypto, incidentally. Mm -hmm. This is how people invest in crypto. They invest in crypto unless you're, and even when you're buying Bitcoin, it is a narrative thing, right? But it is like the, it's sort of the, the God meme, um, to quote Lily Frankis, within the crypto space. But like, this is how you're investing. You're not investing, I did an episode on this, on Ethereum. Um, and while, I, we can explore the sort of legitimate technical uh, impediments to the thesis of moving to EIP 1559 or particularly to moving to proof of stake um, and some of the, let's say, valid economic arguments. Ultimately, I wanted to do an episode purely from the perspective of what is this from a narrative perspective and does it make sense speculating in it because the narrative sounds good. Right. And, and I was also aware of that, um, that sort of hypocrisy or whatever you want to call it. That's kind of why I did the episode. But like, this is how people invest. Like, they are increasingly investing along these terms. So, like, the question is what kind of economy comes out of that? What sort of economy in the real world uh, manifests from a capital markets allocation layer? where you're not investing based on any reference to underlying reality, but well, you're going to get an increasingly noisy channel that doesn't work. But right? isn't that the state of affairs for basically every public corporation with access to capital markets at the moment, right? Like where the discount rate is zero, the hurdle rate for any new marginal investment is effectively zero, high yields, even, even, you know, double B minus companies are able to, to issue um, five or 10 year paper at sub 3% rates. Like there's, if there's no consequences for malinvestment, right. then the only objective, like yeah. the rational investor seeks the best Ponzi. Right. So, you know, well, um, I think the hurdle rate I would take issue there with because the hurdle rate has to incorporate the supply of money. So it's not zero. Which it's is close which to zero is as expanding. No, you, you can't know because if you you just printed forty percent of the world's currency last year, that is a debasement of the currency. Your hurdle rate is not zero based on the interest rate; it's your corporate treasury based on the dilution that that had just occurred and the future dilution that is going to occur. So you have to take that. It's it's I guess probably I don't know if it enhances your thought or not, but it, it's actually not a zero hurdle rate. It's higher, so you have to reach more in more speculative ventures in order to try and offset that as well. Well, yeah, the right tail So that tail might actually is, work. You've extended the right tail. So so you're incentivizing risk-seeking and speculation mm -hmm. because the Lottery not ticket participating outcome. in the right tail, then there's this FOMO aspect or right. the potential to get left behind, whether it's in the housing well, you, market or- Your treasury is left behind. If you if you take the, the point of view, I'm going to stick it in treasuries and earn 0%. You, you, you have been- um, uh, debased 
to some degree. Anyway, not, that's not the main point of this, but continue on. I don't want to derail the main point. I don't know where we, um, we were exactly. Damn but- it. <laughs> Well, no, no, it's sort of the gamification of, uh, but I was just, mm. go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to, uh, you, you said something that made me think about, oh, right. What kind of, um, so in this type of a system, what type of economy do we get? And what we get is the continuation, but to, to extremis of, of a phenomenon we've been seeing for the last several decades, which is that we move from a, an economy that creates things to one that extracts value becomes from one that's creating value to a zero-sum economy where it's just money is getting shifted around and it's accumulating. The, the, the claims on property, the claims on wealth are accumulating to a smaller and smaller part of the network. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that, and, and the network is no longer functioning as an, as, a, uh, as an integral part of the growth of the economy, but rather as a way of shifting claims around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the principal economic activity is rent-seeking. I think right, so. rent-seeking, and people know that uh, intrinsically. They may not understand it. You know, like millions of voters may not understand it, but they know they're getting caught. Exactly, yes. So, like, that that feeds into, and this is something that I had said, this is a phrase that I talked, like, back in the day with my radio show, maybe, or even maybe a little later with Capital Account, probably, maybe 2012 or so. But the idea was that we, by by. Re- by suppressing interest rate volatility, that was analogous to suppressing electoral volatility at the ballot box, so to speak. The, the idea that, you know, North Korea is electorally non-volatile, but it's politically unstable, just like just like Saudi Arabia, right? Italy is electorally volatile, but it's politically stable. It's, it, you know, it's, it's way more stable than North Korea. So uh, the, the, the suppression of interest rates causes stability, begets instability, right? Yeah, it's like the political Minskyism, right? Right. So it leads to instability, which we recognized in 2008, but it it also leads to political instability because if you increasingly make it impossible to to compete in the marketplace and fulfill that power process, because this, you know, an episode I did very early on in the the show, um, really the first 30 episodes or so were dedicated to me exploring things that have been on my mind for a long time. And I did an episode, it was just a monologue, where I read from Ted Kaczynski's um, Industrial Society and Its Future, the Unabomber Manifesto. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And one of the things that he talks about in this um, largely insane, momentarily brilliant thing uh, was about the power process. Actually, he spent most of his time talking about the power process. It wasn't the stuff that I found most interesting. But the power process being the process by which human beings exert their will upon the world, right? And there is a correlation between the ability to project power and happiness and fulfillment and contentment. When your life is determined entirely by other people, uh, when, it, when you need to, when, if you want to buy a home, if you have to go to a bank and ask for the money and they can tell you, no, your credit's shit, we're not going to give you a loan versus someone else who can go pay cash for that, that that's 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 a completely different type of experience to have in the world. And when, pe- when more and more people are increasingly unable to experience that power process in, in the economy, there is one place where they can still exert power, and that's at the ballot box. Mm-hmm. And so you end up having people that elect destructive agents of chaos to come into the office of the presidency or into the halls of Congress because they don't give a shit. They're no longer invested. In they the got nothing to lose. 
they got nothing to lose. And on top of that, for a little behavioral behavioral psychology, people get to a point where even if they have something to lose, they're so indignified mm-hmm. that they're willing to let it burn. And to that mm-hmm. point, to bring it back to politics, I, and I know lots of people who felt this way, even though it may not have been in our interest, macro picture, to have an agent of chaos in the White House, there was a part of me that enjoyed watching him skewer all those other politicians, call out all the hypocrisy, call out all the bullshit. And I got a lot of satisfaction from that. And there was this tension. I could feel it when, when, when the results were coming in and everything else. I was like, do I want to be president or don't I want to be president? If he's not president, if he is president, at least there's the upside that I can watch this theater continue because there is some satisfaction I get out of it. You know? That's a really interesting point. I mean, I, I, I know that I have on, a, on on many occasions articulated kind of a similar view, but this is the nihilistic state, right? Which is right, exactly. But but I, I have children. I had young children at the time, and I was I was at this point where I would rather that we achieve this critical state and 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 move through it before my children come of age yeah. and need to be adults in in what I know will emerge from the the cataclysm, right? And yeah. so can the cataclysm just come sooner rather than later? And so I sort of saw some of Trump being like, yeah. while he's he's clearly a deplorable human being. And, and I mean, it's funny because we're all Canadians and we don't really subscribe to the same sort of party well, allegiance. Two, two of I think, us that, are Canadians. Fair, well, living, yeah, 50%. fair enough. I don't know how you identify, but... Um, <laughs> Um, but, but there was, there wasn't the same, but, but certainly there was like, if we could just get past this fourth turning, I'm going to use that very, very loosely, um, sooner than later, that would be preferable. Right. And maybe Trump is a catalyst for us to, to move through that more quickly rather than keep continuing to kick the can down the road. Right. It's the anticipation of crisis that is, that causes an anxiety, even maybe more than crisis itself right yeah i think we're also fat and happy is the unfortunate truth you know and uh this goes back to the point about how many of us who are of the means the know-how the connections to facilitate the type of change that's required how many of us are willing to do what it takes to get us there because of how much we have to lose and uh, i think about that quite a bit um I don't know because absent that, you can't solve the problem democratically. You need a strong man. Um, and sometimes I kind of feel like I'm just, I'm willing to close my eyes, you know, all right, doctor, give me the shot. You know, just, just, I just, I just want to find somebody who I can trust to administer no, but Dimitri, walk me through that because I'm not sure I follow the logic because I, sure. it seems like as we move from a society that has a relatively even income or wealth distribution, let's call mm-hmm. it a prosperity distribution so we don't need to get into the semantic details of what whatever that means, but a relatively even-handed um, prosperity distribution to one that is extremely concentrated, like the one that we mm-hmm. have today, like, you know, we haven't really seen since the late yep. 1920s. Why is it politically intractable or 
why does it why does why do you perceive it as intractable politically to have a situation where there's a sufficient like a critical mass of people who feel like they have nothing to lose they're willing to take that medicine or take that shot and the narrow sleeve of wealthy elites just don't have the political capital or political like votes to see that through or to prevent it rather. What I'm suggesting is that uh, when you have money, you have power. Well, that's not, again, those are not perfect because connections are very important. But what I'm, what I'm suggesting is that as, as we, as the arrow of time moves forward, the wealth and power accumulates in a smaller number of hands and people who might be doing well now will not be doing so, so well. But while people are doing well, it's hard to get them to take to to give up those comforts or to take the risks or to, to bear the costs necessary to reform the system because there are no guarantees that it will reform. So, so we're not quite at the point where wealth is concentrated sufficiently narrowly. Well, no, to, what, I'm su- what I'm suggesting is that, no, no, no. What I'm suggesting is that what I'm suggesting is that we might have passed a certain point where the wealth is concentrated so much that there is no democrat, there's no sort of organically democratic solution, but rather th- this is going to happen at the elite levels of society, and that there's going to be, and I think we're seeing this in a way. Um, so it's a hundred percent regulatory capture now, or like I do think greater so, than fifty percent. I do. I mean, I think it's effectively total regulatory capture. That, right. that is what right. I believe. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. And I think we're seeing now something along the lines of um, a sort of battle of elites. I think we're, what we're seeing is the old and the new guard. And that's where a lot of the conflict is occurring. It's people that made their wealth. Um, I've talked about this as well. We've gone through cycles like this in American history. The Civil War was one of those examples. The Civil War happened because the North industrialized. The reason was slavery, but the ability to fight a war against the South and win, and win was because the Union had become powerful and had accumulated so much power. Incidentally, the accumulation of power by the Union and its ability to influence tariffs in the United States was the was the primary one of the primary reasons why the South was so enraged against the North. So this was a, a, a transferring of power, a changing of the guard. Similarly, in the early 1920s the industrialists had amassed a massive amount of wealth and power, and that accrued to their children. So you were, you, were, you were seeing a transformation of the culture in the elite slayer society from a nationalist industrialist society to one of international elites who identified as such. And I think today we're seeing something similar with respect to Silicon Valley money. People that made their wealth in the, in the, in the sort of startup world um, and in technology and, you know, companies like Google, Amazon, these are the new elites. And so all of that is sort of changing. And I think, you know, I think, I think we're living through that at, at present. So I, at risk of, I feel like I'm sort of dominating the conversation, but I'm really having a lot of fun and enjoying this conversation. So, um, you know, I, I, I'd, I'd love to keep it going, but I, you know, both you and Richard touched on something a little bit earlier in the discussion that I think is a really interesting thing to explore, which is this idea of 
how do we find it? How do we seek truth? And how do we seek a shared narrative? Or let's use a shared story um, in the modern age, right? Like, so in a, in a situation where we can, you can Google anything and Google knows your biases and proclivities because of your previous search history and it's AI. And the way you frame the question is going to, to, to drive, you know, the search to go in, in a certain direction. What that means is you can, you can, I think, quite literally find substantive evidence for almost any view that you want to take backed by credible experts, you know, maybe not with Cochrane reviews or like, but, but, but seriously backed by, by credible experts with strong intuitive narratives, decent research published in reputable publications. How do we seek truth in this type of environment? And does it even matter? But let's start with how do you seek truth? Yeah, so that, I mean, I don't know. I, you know, that's the honest answer um, because the process by which I come to to know what is true, or or to at least operate with that basic presumption that this is somehow true, is itself a mystery to me. I can deconstruct it philosophically, but ultimately, the way in which I navigate through the world and, and in which the way in which I interact with things is being fixed or real is almost entirely, uh, if not entirely, subconscious. Um, and because the nature of our lived experience is changing so much, we are spending, one way to think about it is that we're spending, the world that we live in today is increasingly one that, that gets filtered. Now, now we're going to run into some issues of language here, but it it's increasingly a, a, a world of, of our, made for our mind as opposed to a one made for our integrated mind, body, soul. Mm -hmm. um, and in that world, it becomes much more difficult to talk about what is or what is not true and to solve for truth because then truth becomes, solving for truth becomes a problem of logic, a problem of epistemology, a problem of creating protocols and grappling with the uncomfortable truth about axiomatic, about non-axiomatic foundations to our conception of what is real. Yeah, um, which among all of the potential truths, at the limit, basically all of it is non-axiomatic, is subjective. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Right, exactly. And so we're grappling with that today, and I think the vast majority of us don't know it, and those of us who do know it are mostly unaware of it. And... I don't know what the answer to that is. I mean, the blockchain space has an interesting contribution to make here, and they've they've made it and been making it and trying to work through this problem, whether it's when it comes to the problem of money, whether it comes to actual, let's say, um, processes by which decentralized attestation. Um, but, you know, these are I – don't, I don't know, man. I don't know – I think it's I think it's a weird time because I've talked about this and I talked about it on this podcast as well or this live stream. I've talked about it on the Grant Williams podcast. 
I don't know. I'd be curious to know what you guys think about this. Well, don't you think the the in order to get the shared narrative, the emotional saliency of whatever the event is that causes that lightning strike of commonality is probably things that have been things like revolutions. Like they are there are significant events that catalyze the population in that one direction. You you have all this noise, right? We've talked about which which really kind of pollutes the opportunity to have a shared narrative. So the the level to actually have a shared narrative, the catalytic nature of that event grows as the noise grows. Is that catalytic like that nature of that event grows as the noise? Yeah, sure. Because the noise is like the tinder and yeah. the, the, the event is the spark. Um, and so the event has to be sort of that crisis necessity change type of event, which makes it larger and larger and maybe more and more of an outlier if it has to occur amongst that noise in order to get the shared narrative is what I'm coming to. Right. Yeah, so, so how do we but that's, create that's, that as a society? So I, I, I love this, but what, I, but I believe, I think for me, this is sort of the second part, which is like, okay, does the truth even matter? Right. Because what you're talking about is how do we, how do we crystallize a narrative or how, how do we, how do we galvanize a, a critical mass of, belief in a narrative in order to take some sort of necessary action. Right. But, but which, which I'm absolutely, and I, and I want to go there, but I want to also talk about the fundamental nature of reality is, is, is truth something that's worth pursuing? Is it possible to pursue in most Mm -hmm. domains in the modern? Well, what are we talking about? about I mean, do we talking about epistemic truth or are we talking about sort of revelatory truth? Because I think, I think those, two things, those two things are not necessarily one and the same. So I don't mean like what is the mass of the Higgs boson, right? Like things that are measurable or like, you okay. know, but like, but, but epistemic truth. You don't, mean, like, you don't mean like the mass of the Higgs boson. But you, you don't uh, mean that. I don't mean that. I mean like, I mean like things that we need to, basically what I mean is inductive truth. Right. Things that you can't measure and mathematically quantify, but but rather things that a variety of things might be true. And we need to perform experiments in order to determine what is most true. The challenging thing there is truth is probably transient in this in this. There's a truth for the no, but there's, time. If it's transient, there's a there's a there's another layer below it. That is, what are the dynamics that change the state of truth? I don't fully right. follow. I mean, when you say the dynamics that change the state of truth. Well, I, I'm reacting to Mike's statement that inductive truth or the truth of a situation that, that you need in order to be able to make some sort of fundamental decision might change through time because the facts, the, the information that you use to make that decision changes through time, right? But But... There's always the a level at which the information is is true, and then there's a model you use to make a decision, right? But it's never that the that the facts are not facts. Uh, wait, are you are you drawing a distinction between the, the the facts and the model that you run them through in order to determine what is what you should do? I'm not. Fa- I guess I'm not fully following, although this probably was inevitable. 
Um, and because I'm, I'm a light, I'm a lightweight. Um, so I don't, I, I guess I don't fully follow. Like, I mean, for me, when I think about truth and I don't know if this is where you were going, it sounds like it's probably not, but I do think that one of the problems that we've, we were just run into is that we don't know what's true other than what we believe to be true. And it's been, really, it comes out to what is conviction. It's actually interesting because I, I, I think one way to think about truth is how sure are you of it under a wide variety yes. of circumstances? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, what I, again, something I've talked about, the way I view the world is that the tools of reason and science can give us a really great and theoretically perfect understanding of the simulation that is running in our, in our minds and in the world. Um, but we cannot tell us anything conclusively about ontological truth or base reality. The only thing that could possibly give us that is our own conviction in some revelatory message that we receive about the nature of things. And so that's where I draw a distinction between revelation and epistemic truth. And I don't ridicule revelation because I've had revelatory moments that weren't couched in any type of religious ideology, but we're very much what you like the way that I've seen, I've read in the Bible or other places about something being revealed to someone felt very much like that. Absent all the Christian, Jewish, Muslim, whatever um, connotations. And so, I don't know, that's kind of, I don't know if that makes any sense. <laughs> no, like that's sort of truth as illumination, right? Um, yeah, truth as illumination, truth as, for me, like I had that in the, in the process of my grappling with brain surgery and radiation and dementia and everything. There were things that I ultimately deep down felt that I knew to be true that I felt no need to convince anyone else of, that I had no need to articulate to anyone else, that fundamentally changed me in a way that felt like they had been literally inserted in my head. And I didn't try to draw any larger conclusions from those things, but I found those things to be more deeply true and resonant as someone who had spent my life deconstructing the world philosophically. So let me me give you an example. I'm curious, what were they? Yeah, no, actually, that's a good. Yeah. Well, one that's of them was one of them was about love and gratitude. Um, that was very much like a tape cassette that was inserted in my head after my brain surgery. That felt um, now someone could come and tell you that that was some bicameral schism, and you know, sure didn't feel that way. Felt like um, you know, it felt like I had a tape inserted in my head and it was repeating a message that had something to do with nothing that I ever I. I thought about love. I'd heard the word. I knew what love was. I had no concept of gratitude. Um, and so that was an example of that. Then there were less articulatable examples of just feeling like, feeling like my life was not some haphazard, haphazard consequence of colliding at atoms. There felt to be some hidden order. Um, and that again was part of that process, that long year of, you know, cure and recovery and everything that I went through. 
And again, someone looking at the outside of all of this and would, could say, well, that was because you just went through brain surgery, you had this, but it, you know, I'm just not convinced of that. And that doesn't mean that um, I felt the hand of God. What I, no. what I felt was that the world truly was, I became aware of a truth, which is that the world, in a, in some, in a way that I understood intellectually prior to that point, but which I hadn't felt sort of in my body which is that the world really is so fundamentally different than I thought it was, than we perceive it to be, and that the nature of my own existence is something that is so awesome that I can't possibly understand it in the minutia of day-to-day. And this is what people, I think, experience when they get in deeply meditative states or when they take psychedelics. Um, And so, you know, so yeah, that's, that's, so I, I think there's there, there's truth that's revealed to us, and then there's truth that we can we can come we can discover for ourselves. And I don't think those two things are necessarily true, but I think the one that we discover for our te- ourselves is part of a, of, a, of a mental technology that we can harness to project power and navigate the world, or the, rather, this simulation of what it is that is the world. It's, but it doesn't give us meaning. It doesn't give us meaning, and there's an absence of meaning a deep, profound lack of meaning in society today, which speaks to nihilism, um, which, again, science and epistemology and all that shit, which is great and I love it, is not going to solve. And so if you don't acknowledge that, you end up having a vacuum of faith and and, and that therein enter the destructive elements of Nature pours a vacuum. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's there's the, two the, distinctions the, the there. Epistemological maybe. paradox. Yeah. Yeah. I was gonna say there, there, there's the stuff that you can derive from first principles, like you know, the, the mass of the Higgs boson or, or or anything that can be calculated to to and with the share with the set of shared uh, axioms that we have through science and all that. And then there's the subjective truths that are oftentimes shared. Through narrative and through storytelling and through, yeah, but this is what I want to. This is what I really want to. I want to. I want to. I want to zero in on that very specific thing because there are. There's a whole class of truths that is not shared story, but is rather a set of experiments that converges on pr- some sort of probabilistic reality. Right? It's a Cochrane review in the medical profession. It is. Um, you know, the, 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 any, any properly or well-formed experiment in the social sciences, right? Um, it is an attempt to emerge a, a phenomenon, an unobservable phenomenon mm-hmm. in, in some sort of probabilistic way and say, most likely things are this way or things are this You're way this that. percentage yeah. of the time. Yeah, I mean, well, logic or mathematics is what what provides that. It's not obviously science because in science we have to have observations. But again, that's a technology of the mind. No, but you know, I don't. I don't know. I, I think I'm I'm talking about so the type of truth where you gather observations, but where okay. the the observations are not measuring something fundamental to the universe. They're sort of measuring something subjective. And so, so in that subjective thing, may be contextual, there may be confounding variables. What do you um, mean measuring something subjective? I'm not following. 
What do you mean you're measuring something so, subjective? Well, you would be measuring something that's the objective. effectiveness of of chloroquinolone in the treatment of of COVID, or um, the 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 effectiveness of certain types of cataract treatment. Or yeah, like, that's fine. Yeah, a scientific. Yeah, you're 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 conducting a scientific study. Yeah, inductive reasoning, but but you can imagine like you move out from the from the physical world and into more subjective spaces, political or social sociological okay. or whatever, and it becomes more subjective, right? Because it's so, the you need it's by survey or it's by observation, and the observation contaminates the conclusions. Like there's a there's sure. most of the world is like that. All of right? the world, all of the world. All the world, I would contend, is um, is like that. But I think what you're talking about is the trouble of moving from, let's say, studying bacteria in a petri dish and do, running scientific experiments at a university uh, with 60 college students answering a 60 question survey. There's no, but, a way oh, more or, noise. Than that. Or 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 is there does 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 nimbyism? I mean, Mike and I were arguing about this yesterday. Does nimbyism? Um. What what is the magnitude of the effect of NIMBYism in the the extent to which municipalities are able to build new residences, right? New household formation. What is the impact of that? I can Google with my question. Mike can Google with his question. Mike can find 50 articles that support his view on that. I can find 50 articles that support my view on that. How do we converge on a truth? And that is, this is unbelievably important because we need some sort of convergent truth in order to create policy to affect right. a, a certain objective. So it sounds like what you're talking, what is NIMBYism? Not in my backyard. So okay. I'm like, uh, all right, all right. So, okay. So what you're talking about is what you're not talking about. Isn't even, I think something that people would talk about as truth. What you're talking about is really, um, different opinions and beliefs. Like we wouldn't, no, it can't be. There's got to be like, there's got to be some fundamental relationship between certain policies and certain outcomes, or maybe there isn't. No, 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 no. I'm actually open policy to- is almost entirely political. I mean, there is policy that we make based on science, but the vast majority of politics is based on you know inner inner um, inner agency power dynamics. No, no, I, I agree with groups. that. I yeah. agree with all of that. But my point is, once you set the objective, which is set by special interest groups, you need a model to understand how a certain policy response is likely to lead to the objective that you are targeting. Um, Yeah, but I mean, I think we can all agree that that's all bullshit. Like, I don't think I would draw a distinction between what we have traditionally thought of as being, you know, um, observable and, uh, you know, fact versus fiction and the idea that, like, um, you know, if if Obama administration passes health care, we're going to save, you know, 50 million lives by the year 2030. Everyone knows that's bullshit. No one has any clue what those numbers are going to be. No, but can we you know? can we get the direction right? I mean, Do we know maybe, what the sign is? Maybe, but we're horrible at that. And you guys work in literally the most like the most difficult business in order to make projections in this because, you know, that when human beings are in the picture, it becomes impossible to make forecasts with any so degree of accuracy. We agree, by the way. We, I, I, can, I think we all agree with this point. So, but it does prompt the question: 
how does one make decisions or set policies? Is it exclusively arbitrary? Oh, and- I got that. No. I, well, so first of all, I think, again, I want to distinguish between. I, again, I'll bring up my guy, my friend, my, my friend, my, my friend, my dear past of Wilt, who had hired me, um, Wilt Hildenbrand, who I said, uh, he used to say, we used to do, uh, we used to do these meetings, you know, uh, with like the executives of the company. And he, and I, and I would get to be, I would get to be part of those meetings. And he, we, I remember he would say like, you know, we had some really big, we we're about to spend a lot of money on something. And so we had to spend all this money, millions of dollars on focus groups. He said, we're going to spend all this money on focus groups and we're going to do whatever the fuck we want to do anyway. You know, <laughs> it's like, you know what I mean? 100%. You know? So like Steve Jobs built the iPhone and decided what we did that based on what? On focus groups? No. You know, based on feeling, based on what Bill Gates said was taste. Yeah. Well, subjects was taste, but so, so like, um, you know, I don't agree that, I think the type of stuff you're talking about is something that no one, no one seriously takes credence in. They use it as a tool of propaganda and and, uh, and of persuasion. We use those types of statistics to raise money and to convince people to, you know, it's narrative. It's, it's a, a narrative story. game. Yeah, it's story. Yeah. Like it's not. I totally it's agree with that. You know what I mean? So it's unknowable. It's eminently unknowable. Yeah, it's just, it's just, it's like, it's like. I, I feel like this is epist- epistemic nihilism. No, no, no <laughs> but that's a great example in Bitcoin. Um, the stock to flow model, okay, in Bitcoin, it's a perfect example. It's a it's a shelling point. That's the other thing. Nihilism. The crypto community uses that term shelling point. They're like, let's construct a shelling point and let's aim at it. They're not saying they're not naturally converging converging on a on a shelling point. They're saying let's con- let's concoct a compelling shelling point and then let's all fucking fire at it. Okay, that is nihilism. You know, it's, that's a, the, it's the same with the meme stocks. Exactly. And, so yes. you're, yeah, and, and Yeah, exactly. And so like I'm being nihilistic, I suppose, when I'm sort of in the or cynical in how I'm describing this. But the one of the questions perhaps to ask is what happens when the entire society is woke to that reality? Uh-huh. What happens? How do you affect policy? How what does do you, happen? Well, I mean, we're, we're living here. We're living in it. We're living in it. Oh no, yeah, we haven't seen the end of the movie. We're living in that reality. We're lit GameStop. We're living in this reality. Um, Dogecoin's the class, the perfect example of nihilism. It's you know, it's a pure, pure worthless bullshit thing. But it's but it, it anyway. So you know, and that and the, by the way, Bitcoin. When when the Bitcoin community says fiat money is a shit coin. Um, but hey, you know what? Your Ponzi is no different than my Ponzi. So invest in my Ponzi. US dollars a Ponzi, Bitcoin's a Ponzi. But what makes your Ponzi better than my Ponzi? It's all about how many people we can corral into the Ponzi. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of like this naked awareness of how we come to consensus reality. So we're in a massive narrative war. Yeah, it's a narrative war, exactly. Um, it's a all right, I want to make sure we give Richard's like got 15 other themes he wants to explore richard come on man take this take this in a, in We're up a to the uh, the two hour mark so i want to be cognizant of dimitri's time i don't know yeah, my, how, my, how much longer he can go especially after the whiskey when you see, has when you see uh, my wife coming through the driveway um oh. <laughs> we did see her, did you see her? 
probably yeah. 20 minutes. She texted me. It should probably be 20. When you see a Jeep Wrangler coming through, then, then you know. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. Go for it, Richard. Come on, man. I mean, after this epistemological uh, uh, rabbit hole. The epi- the- this epistemological gap between us is yeah, very long. Yeah, we, 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 we took a little detour. I, I was just going to tie it back to, to, I guess, geopolitics, if we can, maybe to, to, to wrap it up. I mean, we, we, we were discussing this uh, the other day, Adam, uh, the, the 3D chess and the idea of, of sort of how Russia uh, plays into the 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 bipolar U.S. China uh, world, and how China is doing to the U.S. what the U.S. did to Russia in the 1970s. And what I mean by that is the the, the Kissinger and Nixon's rapprochement to to China to isolate it, to drive a wedge between China and Russia and, and, and visiting China for the first time and sort of ha- how that kind of made the, the USSR even more isolated a decade before it's, it's, uh, it's crumbling and how Russia right now as the, as the junior partner in the, in the relationship, uh, uh, flipping the, the, the positions with China and now the two of them sort of finding this 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 antagonistic role to the US's interests and and finding alternatives to the swift system and all these other geopolitical interests that that make it even harder for the US to to sort of rally the the the, the rest of the western world towards finding some 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 form of cohesion uh uh I wonder if you might comment on on, on how you you see the three this three part uh, uh, game the, the, these three moving uh, uh, players in, in what we might consider to be a, a, an equilibrium that we might find, if at all. I mean, I think we have talked about this. Um, we I guess we didn't really talk about Russia. Um, I think I do think that this has been and continues to be America's game to lose. And unfortunately, the area, the, the way in which we seem to be losing it at the moment is in failing to lead. And why are we failing to lead? Because we've um, significantly da- damaged our moral credibility. And so it becomes very difficult to uh, finger way, wag at the Russians when the stuff that we accuse them of doing, we've been doing forever. And in our moment of sort of, again, you know, to, to bring it back to the point about consensus reality and, um, and the shilling points and how people now in markets have an awareness around how, how price is created and the, the role of narrative and actively engage in it. Similarly, 2001, the war in Iraq significantly damaged U.S. international credibility, moral standing, and also domestic moral standing. So you have a, a, a big chunk of the population that just will, isn't willing to go along with the sort of bad China, bad Russia narrative. Um, and it has to be increasingly nuanced in order to, in order to work. So I think 
the, the, the problem for the U.S. is less that China and Russia are collaborating or that uh, China spreads China or Russia spread spread disinformation in the United States. But it's more that the U.S. has lost the ability to one um, corral local b- domestic po- political support for international policies and two to corral international support for for policies to create a coalition and we saw that the first time we saw that was in gulf war ii the person in 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 the war in iraq the u.s had a really hard time and pushed through a policy internationally didn't have the full support of the united nations and i think that's the problem that we face that we can't go it alone we tried to go it alone in the early 2000s it didn't work we're not we're actually weaker relatively now than we were then and our coalitions are weaker. We couldn't beat a, We couldn't fight a war against Iraq and win that war. Yeah, we won the war, but that, what does that mean when you lose the peace? So why would we be able to do that against the Chinese? The Chinese see that they saw that they took lessons from that, just like they've taken lessons from everything else. So that's the problem where we're at, and you know, it brings us back to the problem of credibility, moral standing, and getting our house in order. We can't look. We can't look out. We, Maybe perhaps to, to Josh Wolf's point and to the point of historians who have contemplated this out in the open, erecting a black and white image of a, of a foreign foe can be very powerful in corralling domestic support. But ultimately, you need to corral domestic support and you need to get your house in order. Whether you use an outside force to do that or not, it's a different story. But you need to be able to, to, to build internal coalitions in order to build external coalitions. And those are the two things that you need in order to fight a war. And I do feel like the U.S. is at war with China and Russia. We're at war with these countries. Um, we're, we're in a cold war with them. But what, de- what defines a cold war is increasingly it's not what it used to be, because this now involves actually kinetic, kinetic type events like Cyber attacks. They don't fall. I don't know if cyber attacks fall into the exact definition of what constitutes a kinetic action in military jargon, but they're kinetic. Sense. Yeah. yeah but there are implications when the colonial pipeline is held hostage or the largest uh, uh, meat producer in the U.S. also can't unlock their systems to distribute protein yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so uh, I do. Uh, I do uh, uh, see your, your 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 point there very clearly. It, it, it is a borderline hot war with with uh, we're, both yeah, Russia. and we're in a, we're in a, and because we don't have rules of the road when it comes to conflict on the international stage in cyber, uh, we're in one of those places where, I mean, I guess you know, World War. If someone dropped an atom bomb, that would have clearly been a, a an act of war, whether it was whether we had established rules around the use of nuclear weapons or not, it would have been a, a war. Um, but, you know, in the world we live today, there, we are constantly intruding on other countries' networks, other countries' corporations, their databases. The U.S. is doing it. The Chinese are doing it. The Russians are doing it. The U.S. doesn't want, on, on the one hand, the U.S. doesn't want to set up rules because they benefit from the anarchic nature of the system and their ability to operate in it as the most um, the most effective powerful agent but 
anyway, and this brings up another problem. I mean, we're sort of I'm sort of meandering everywhere now, but um, we we talk about the U.S. in your sort of three body uh, system of China, Russia, and the U.S. Um, what we haven't really touched on is the fact that as these three institutional actors duke it out in cyberspace and anywhere else, but let's focus on cyberspace. Those they're not they're not atomic entities. They are molecules or you know compounds. We are smaller units within that system. So we are the we are the collateral damage of the fraying institutional order and so um you know i don't know again i I don't i got i mean i I don't know how any of that um plays out or what the right policy is but you know part of the reason why that's also not getting addressed is because again you have to look at some of this as interest group politics and in the u.s there are people who who are aligned with seeing the world increasingly in the form of nation states or nation state power projection and and other people who, um, you know, don't get a piece of that action and want to be able to live in a world where they have data sovereignty, uh, privacy, et cetera. And those, those are just one, just one of an innumerable number of a new, an innumerable, (laughs) struggling to put out words, an innumerable number of examples, um, where uh, of politics at work and the need to be able to come to political consensus. There's just no easy, there's no easy answer. I, I, I think part of the, the reason I'm struggling is because there's just no easy answer. I want to give you one, but there really is. No, I, but I mean, we're, we're used to, we grew up in a world where the nation state was a reflection of a shared story. And the shared story was an expression of at least a, a critical mass of overlapping Venn diagrams on the expression of underlying values, right? And in a in a world that's dominated by by enterprises, where the political system is hijacked by a small number of very wealthy actors through regulatory capture, the nation state has has fallen to the back row and. Instead, what matters is global supply chains, right? It's the flow of goods and it's the flow of capital. And so there's this tension, don't you think, between those who want to preserve a a world order that is predicated on values and, and some form of nationalism. And I mean nationalism in the most positive, constructive way that you can mean it versus based on commercialism, right? Where really the only objective that matters is maximizing global aggregate GDP growth instead of maximizing global median prosperity or, you know, a a large number of other potential objective functions that we might choose to focus on as as societies right i mean i think the economic incentive question is is definitely part of it but the the fact that the u.s uh uh 
only manages to to really look two years ahead on every new electoral cycle, whereas the Chinese are always thinking in multi-decades. And the fact that the Chinese have felt they've been slighted by the West since the Opium Wars, right, since the mid-19th century, and they feel that they have to sort of, they have a bone to pick with the West, and they feel like they they, they, they want to reassert their their uh, uh, their prominence in the world, and they will will they won't allow the pettiness that we see in our society today to to take take their focus away from their ultimate objective. And so, the fact that they can have something akin to an emperor today there, whereas the the the, the U.S. and a lot of the Western uh, uh, Societies are always in this political tussle uh, that seems to be increasingly uh, polarized. Doesn't really help us rally against the set of common objectives that we might have in sort of trying to establish at least common ground to then make a a, a front against what we might perceive as a, a looming uh, a shadow, if not attack, but then sort of find this this perhaps equilibrium, which may never be something that we could arrive at, but is an objective unto itself because it then helps us sort of reduce the volatility around the, the, the outcomes that we might have globally, if that makes some sense. Maybe, but ask a question too. <laughs> I was you know, more, going to make I a statement, Richard. We've, we've we've rehearsed this well, I think with point. confidence. I think yeah, we're I think at that. the point in the in the, in the happy hour uh, drinking ex, uh, sort of after work uh, experience where the brain starts to get foggy for all of us. <laughs> it's quite possible, yeah. That's that could be very perceptive. <laughs> so I, I certainly feel is, that way. Yeah, I think this is. Dimitri's way of uh, sort of helping us rap. I just, I just listen, <laughs> that's I the voice of experience right there. I listened to, yeah. I, I, listen I, to think, my I last. Has I listened to my last two answers to you, and that's what was going. The, the separate monologue in my brain was like, the noise in this channel is increasingly uh, <laughs> growing. All right, perfect. Now we can let it fly, boys. Now, now the magic two hours is right here. Hey, that's right. Exactly. Just All the magic happens yourself. at two. After so, two hours, 15 minutes. Um, I, maybe I should ask you guys something now. How about that? You want to wrap it up with me? Sure. Sure. Okay. Um, so it doesn't necessarily have to be financial or political or anything. Not at all. Okay. Anything you want. Um, so, well, actually, so you guys, we were talking before we got on, on the air about the Cayman Islands because both of you guys are, the, are in the Caymans. Yeah. Mike and I are, yes. Yeah. How long have you been? A year or two? Yeah. A year um, and a half. So how do you guys view all of this political stuff from like this, from, from, from living in the Cayman Islands? Like, how do you view your... Um, political investment in this situation? Do you feel like you're basically like, even if like, you want the U.S. To, to thrive, et cetera, but do you feel f less physically invested? I don't mean financially. I mean, because you're like so, you know, detached. You're not like in the U.S. And the, you know what I'm saying? Do you feel like um, 
do you feel like you're able to ride this situation out with less anxiety and concern than let's say people living in the U.S.? Uh, I'll start. I would say that that from a personal day to day life, from a physical perspective, yeah. it's much easier to observe it. But from an overarching, you know, where are our families? What is the future of our children? Um, even where we are and the travel and the business connections we have, obviously, we're keenly interested in uh, both the global stage and ergo uh, the U.S as the main actor in the global stage representing sort of Western values. So there's, there's a lot at stake, I think, globally for, um, you know, I'll call it Western civilization and the, the life as we would know it growing up in, in Canada and having a lot of U.S. influence. So whilst the day-to-day isn't quite there, there's a, certainly a, you know, crime level is much lower here. And I'm sure there's er- certain areas of, of the U.S. that would emulate a Cayman experience. Um, so there's that, but, but the global stage, the global actors, the implications to other countries, the interrelationships all make the U S stage. Are you, trying the to, to, are you trying to diversify financially and otherwise to try and have a safe haven in the event that like shit gets out of control? Well, we're here, we have that, yeah. but if it gets, if it gets out of control, it would be naive to think that you know, some, some little island in the middle of the Caribbean sea or the, the Canadian hey. context would be, would be that much better or that much safer. Well, no, I mean, um, you think there I are think places- protected by the fact that the, the, the people that hold the power in the U S that are able to affect the degree of regulatory capture that we observe mm-hmm. derive a massive amount of their wealth from the ability to to hold their wealth in offshore jurisdictions. And actually, I, I say that in reality, Cayman Islands is not really where that wealth ends up being held. This ends up being a, a neutral jurisdiction where mostly sort of financial funds end up holding, holding and trading. And then the, it gets disseminated and taxes paid in the relevant jurisdictions. And that's the role that Cayman has played. But Certainly tax neutral jurisdictions, more like Ireland, for example, would be a, a place where a massive amount of offshore corporate wealth and corporate Calling. power is is derived and wielded from. And so to the extent that we're sort of in in that umbrella, then we're in a way protected because we're we're sheltered by the fact that the wealth and power is relies on the rules around this in this way. Sure. I would also say that for me, it is, if you ask Mike and I, this question, you'll get completely different answers. Well, tell him your answer. (laughs) Mike will take a libertarian stance and I will take a sort of financial nihilist stance, which is I don't like this game. I prefer, I prefer a world in which in which everybody pays a, a a very substantial amount of tax, where the tax system is highly progressive, where we do our best to mitigate the wealth accretion from luck and reward the wealth accretion from productive capacity, but that productive capacity or the wealth that accrues in that productive capacity is recycled back into the economy at death because you're not you pass that on to your heirs. Why? Right, they haven't earned you it. Prefer, they haven't demonstrated you prefer that system. 
I prefer something where where wealth is recycled to death, where, what, where luck is penalized. But then why would you move? But then why would you move to the game and out? Because good question. <laughs> it's a it's the hate the game, don't hate the player. So this if this is the game we're going to play, and the middle class is going to pay all the taxes, and so it brings and, me back to, my, to the point I made earlier, which is that the game theory gets in the way of solutions, which is that exactly. the people that are in a position to, to provide solutions or who are educated enough to see the problem are also not motivated enough to do anything about it because they're better off from a, from a personal standpoint of simply taking care of themselves and their family. And, you know, from the periphery, writing about it, commenting about it, but really they're not, they have no skin in the game. Well, I, I would. So yes, with the I'm caveat that look, I, I'm willing to, I'm making that point for myself as well. No, yeah, no, it's, it's, no, it's, it's all good. And you made it earlier and it was a valid point. Yeah. I guess all I would say is that in a situation where everybody suffered equally, I would be very content with that. What I'm not willing to do is suffer alone. I agree. And that's what I'm trying. That's what I'm saying. So yeah. the problem what is, what I want is, I guess my point is what I want right. is a situation where everybody does suffer. Yeah. And no, no, at no, which yeah. point I'm Soviet? super happy to suffer. Did you just go Soviet on us? I just want to make sure that we he, heard everything. Everybody we heard. Epistemologically, I just want to make sure that we <laughs> well, all heard the same right. thing so that we're finding well, common ground of what that knowledge the, is. I just want to point out, though, that, I mean, I agree. So there are two things here. Um, I agree that, I, I mean, I, I feel the same way. I do think also, if I were being honest, I think when the, when, and this is my point about like, you know, sort of some authoritarian coming in, just giving it a shot, because like my instinct is to constantly resist if you're going to try and take what I've built or, or what I've earned for myself. So th- that is one thing separate from what you said, but just taking what you said, I agree. And I feel the same way. The problem is that there are no guarantees in life. So that is in practical, in its practical application, it is your resistance or my resistance to a solution. Uh, when in fact we understand that some, uh, something, a break from this is necessary, but because no one can give us a guarantee that the, that the money will be redistributed fairly or that we won't be screwed in the process of handing our power over, right? Because what we're basically being asked to do or what is being asked of us is to hand over our weapons, hand over our shields, hand over the tools that we've accumulated and created in our lives in order to give us some amount of power to operate in the system, to hand this over to a central party who will then redistribute it all out fairly in order to keep the whole system from breaking. And unfortunately, the game theory breaks down there because you don't trust the central counterparty here because the central counterparty has been proven to be untrustworthy. Like, this is the central problem we deal with, yep. right? And what. Well- and this is kind of what I come come back to what I was trying to get to earlier with the, the lightning bolt in order to motivate everyone to actually take the shot grows larger and larger to some extent against some common evil or some common event in order that we all finally catalyze in the same direction. Well, so this guy that I'm having on the show um, on Monday, this is something that he talks about. Um, he talks about it in terms that I've, I've, that made me uncomfortable and not just uncomfortable. Uh, you know, I think it's one thing to feel uncomfortable because I can feel uncomfortable about something that I think is the right direction. I feel, I feel a little bit more than just uncomfortable. I don't fully agree with his um, solution or with his diagnosis, all aspects of it. But I do, I do agree with parts of it or with the 
the general observation that individuation in society has become a malignancy. The individual has gone from being uh, sort of a source of um, positive combinatorial ideation um, and growth to being a source of destruction and decay. Um, And we see it in, I think, to Adam's point, this is not this is not empirically demonstrable, but I think there are rising levels of narcissism in our society. Um, and are you talking about me? No. <laughs> and I don't. Believe- yes. Yes, we are. By virtue of the fact that you asked that question, we are That's now talking about it. you. That's why yeah. I said it. <laughs> I think you have to ask the question of like, can we continue to scale a, a, developed technologically advancing society um, with this level of personal freedom and wealth. I don't know. Um, You know, I don't know. And I don't know what that means for what are the compromises that we have to make between personal freedom and the collective good. And why would we make them? And why would we make them? What would be the motivating factor to make them? And why would we make them when, why would those of us who are comfortable in the current game, why would we make them, why would it make more sense to make those decisions when we, when we run the math, we're, we're more likely to survive and our kids to survive if we just hold on to our own power than to simply hand over this, you know, to this. Well, that's true, but it's, it's the old, it's, it's like, um, pick it up nickels in front of a steamroller. Like it, you're, you're you're kicking the can because you don't want to have to go through the hard times personally. And you'd prefer if your children didn't have to go through hot, but you know that the hard times are coming. But maybe yeah, you but can steal yourself and your family from but, them. But so maybe, like there are people that, that, that the question is how much wealth do you need in order to do that? Which is also why you tend to find that people, the more wealth they have, the more obsessive they get about the most sort of like low, probability risk outcomes you know like they'll build insane bunkers in the unlikely event that like the whole united states gets nuked and they can live for 30 years underground with you know pristine artificial waterfalls so like you know what i'm saying so like that the, 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 it's a mentality so, of scarcity right i think the zeitgeist yeah, is a mentality of scarcity completely into the scarcity mentality and so to answer Mike's question, how might we walk that back? Maybe it's a, 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 a it would have to be sort of this concerted effort to get the zeitgeist back to something more akin to well, let, let me offer, yeah, and, well, let me and, offer. And maybe it's not. Provide. Well, maybe it is, and maybe we have the technical technological revolution, and we're going to have nuclear fission, and we've got endless energy, or maybe it's the world wars and the Great Depression that formed the greatest generation that set the stage for the selflessness and the suffering around a set of principles that, that, that we are still benefactors of today. We're soft. Yep. So we've we gone haven't full had the opportunity. Turning. I just want to acknowledge we've gone full fourth turning and, and I'm reminded of the mean that hard times make strong men, strong, strong men make good times, good times, good times make, make weak, weak men. men. 
and we then we make hard times. hard times back again. Yeah. And so we're, we're, the, we're, we've gone full circle on four turning and we're coming up on two and a half hours. And I'm wondering where we might find a sliver of optimism to wrap this in a sort of positive note. But I don't think it's meant to be. <laughs> what do you mean? The optimism is the fact that the cycle continues and there will right. be a mass calamity and that generation will catalyze for the future and adam it might be your kids it might be my kids and that's the privilege that they're going to have to go through that i also 100 percent, i agree with that and i'll add to that too because something i said earlier which was that like maybe this is just what it feels like to live in collapse right exactly um, and so like we have this idea in our heads that um the outcome that we dread is so horrific we don't want to even sort of contemplate it and yet we know that human beings have lived through that over and over and over again in their lives. And we've survived all of those situations. And we also know that people get acclimated to every sort of environment. It's, you know, mm-hmm. you get used to, to things. Yep. People exactly. live right now in Syria. Um, I don't know what the current situation is at the moment. For, for, the, for most of the last 10 years, that country has been torn apart by war. And people who lived in a peaceful um, cosmopolitan city um, found themselves living in a demolished war zone. Oh, there's the Wrangler. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> all right. Well, we're rapid. The adaptability of the uh, of mankind, I think, is also the silver lining, and the fact that we might be at the cusp of the four turning it's always darkest before dawn and we might just be seeing a glimmer of hope on the horizon is that where i uh i mean to be continued if you want to know my 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 honest like feeling on this i just think i think when it comes to things like hope and stuff like that that's like for us individually in our own lives you know and it's to have perspective to understand that your life ends don't take it too seriously um, you, you don't know how long you're going to be around and it's not going to be that long anyway. Um, and just, you know, get comfortable with that. Uh, you know, whether, whether we die from a nuclear explosion or whether, um, it happens because we're diagnosed with cancer or we die in a car accident, you know, like these are, these are scary, tough things and you can let them get you down. I'm not saying you guys, you can let them get you down, but, um, but like, you know, life is hopeful fundamentally in the fact that it is like, you know, and we we have an opportunity to live it. And I think what's difficult about these types of conversations when it comes to those types of questions is that they are inherently out of our control. So like we can't. So it's important, I think, to focus on the things that we can control. And, you know, um, that's my sort of answer to that. I can't think of a better place to wrap up the conversation, honestly. Um, So I'm going to leave it right there. Dimitri, this was just as much fun as I expected it to be. Maybe even more fun. Thank you so much for off-roading with us the way that we off-roaded. And I mean, it was, I was just, and I can't wait to do this again. So where can everyone find Dimitri too? So where can everybody find you? Give them all the areas. Uh, Yeah. Yes, so you can follow me on Twitter at Kofinas with a K. Um, and you can check out the Hidden Forces episode library and all the past episodes we've done and all the supplemental material, et cetera, at hiddenforces.io. By the and way, you- your your supplemental material is astonishing, man. 
Thank Holy you. shit. I just can't get over the amount of prep well, and, and all yeah, the summary thanks. and the links and the extra stuff. So Lots cannot of fully recommend paid that members. highly fully enough. Members, well, look, yeah. here, I'll show you yeah. guys. This, all, all of these are books I've read in the course of, like, you can't even see them all. I can't, I can't <laughs> get all the library. I love it. That's incredible. Anyway, um, so all, all the way up. Um, and those are just some of them. Um, so like, I just love reading is the lesson. So I enjoy doing the prep. I thank you guys. Uh, I had a lot of fun. Really appreciate your time, Dimitri. Thank you for coming. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, yeah. have a great week. And, and here's Thanks, to guys. the, uh, the glimmer of hope, not being the oncoming train in the, in the tunnel. Okay. <laughs> You're here. <laughs> Cue the music. All right, guys. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.